Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today my guest is Gregory Cochran. My original interview with Greg actually went six hours. We ended up having a great time talking about everything, and I didn't think there was much of a market for a podcast interview that went six hours, so I've significantly edited it down. As a result, you might notice some sharp transitions in our discussion. Uh, Greg is the co-author of The 10,000-Year Explosion, How Civilization Accelerated Human Evolution, and he blogs at West Hunt. Uh, hi, Greg. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. So um, could you tell us about your background, please? Um, if we're talking educational background, uh, I studied physics. I ended up getting a PhD in uh, solid-state physics. Uh, and then worked in uh, aerospace, Hughes Aircraft, uh, most usefully, I think. Uh, uh, worked on adaptive optics, Fourier optics, some device physics. Uh, and then for reasons that probably could never really be explained, I kind of got interested in some things in uh, anthropology and evolution. I did some things with uh, Paul Ewald uh, and also until, unfortunately, very recently with Henry Harpending. Yes, he, he passed away recently. That was quite a loss. So you've written a lot on your blog about ways we might increase human intelligence. Uh, Assuming so, that that's a good thing. Yes. Well, so, well it might not be. I, I think that competitive pressures are going to cause us to do it, even if it's not a good thing. So um, we're stuck with it. Some of them are, are quite unusual. Uh, do you want to talk about what do you think the most likely ways are we're going to increase human intelligence over the next century or so? I'm not absolutely sure we will, but I can think of ways in which we could. Okay. Uh, uh, you probably talked to Steve Chu about uh, uh, basically identifying, uh, uh, ident you know, we're starting to identify DNA variants that, uh, that uh, increase or decrease IQ a little bit. If you know enough of those, you could predict something about IQ, and that's starting to be possible. So if we just go out and kill lots of people who <laughs> score low uh, one way or another, then we could certainly raise the average. Uh, the, um, I well, take that's it you're joking with that one about wanting to do it. or I don't want to do it, okay. but, uh, <laughs> but that's certainly what they're usually talking about. Uh, um, it also, if we're talking about other technologies that are increasing, you could change the DNA, although that's probably not as so close, but it's closer than it used to be uh, with, with this CRISPR technology. Mm -hmm. You could change variants uh, in a ways to, you know, to, to give people more, more plus variants and fewer uh, negative variants, as well as, of course, fixing lots of, you know, just the errors that the flesh is heir to in terms of um, things that, you know, there are mutated versions of many genes floating around at low frequency, and now and then, they heard, rather probably everybody has heard a little and some people are heard a lot, particularly when you have two bad copies of something. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's hope for improvement on that front. Uh, but uh, there are other approaches. Uh, well, can, you we can, try, can we yes? explore these for a bit? Uh, sure. How much of intelligence, a variation in human intelligence, do you think is probably due to genetics? Most of it, probably. By most... I mean, there are obviously other things that can affect it, uh, and there are other things that people would like to affect it but don't. Uh, I mean, we know, for example, there can be bad environmental things that can happen. The simplest one is having somebody hit you in the head, uh, which, by the way, we're getting a lot more appreciation of with the dangers of football and so forth. It's not just a joke. Uh, 
in some parts of the world, I mean, including the upper Midwest in the past, uh, iodine shortages were a problem. Uh, there are things that are sort of unclear, like uh, something like uh, you know, near starvation. You would think it had negative effects, but I'm not absolutely sure that it does. Uh, in uh, in Holland, World War II, there was a period in which the Dutch had irritated the Germans by breaking the dikes, and the Germans cut off the food supply for some time. And a lot of there was a lot of starvation and near starvation in, uh, in in 1944 and early 1945. And people have looked at uh, the numbers for people who were say in embryo mm -hmm. uh, during that period. Uh, they've looked at the, that year class, how they did in, in the draft physicals and in uh, uh, psychological tests and so forth, and they don't look any different. Uh, but you know, there are other forms of insult. What if maybe if you were short on food for a long time, maybe that makes a difference. Uh, by the way, there is one effect that is known from that, which is there was more schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. uh, that approximately doubled in that in that year class that was exposed to the Dutch uh, famine, and unfortunately, it also happened in the Great Leap Forward in China. Um, at on a, unfortunately much larger scale, yeah. so so you know there are things that might cause trouble, but mostly we don't know. I mean, I could say the same category with various kinds of infectious disease, like does having malaria, say particularly as a kid, does it slow you down? And the answer is, it would be plausible, but I don't know of any real evidence that it does. Uh, there are certainly some things, not super common, but you know they'll that will affect the brain directly, and they can, like meningitis. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, as for uh, widespread things, that environmental things, uh, there are other things that people expect to make a difference, and I think mostly they don't. Uh, like, you know, when people talk about which school you go to is going to make have a big effect, I don't think that looks to be true. Uh, the uh, by which I mean, I don't believe it even slightly, but you know, I could be wrong. Uh, so parents shouldn't be worried about the quality of the school their kid goes to as long as the kid isn't going to be suffering physical insults? Well, that's my philosophy, but maybe <laughs> I'm just cheap. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of money. Uh, well, for example, uh, uh, well, we sort of used a, a mixed strategy, uh, and it was at least partly informed by actually liking to have my kids around and see them as well as liking them to not be beaten up in middle school. Middle school. But we... Uh, homeschooled our kids through eighth grade, and then we sent them to the local crappy public high school. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the transition was interesting. Uh, my daughter, who was the, our oldest, uh, when she started school, she was, you know, worried it, it'll be hard. I don't know these people, and I laughed and laughed. Uh, she took a, uh, a vocabulary test when she was, you know, a couple of weeks in as a freshman. And she got a 12.9 on it, and she was panicked because she thought it was out of 100, but it was a grade level. Oh. <laughs> and that was as high as it went. Uh, but uh, anyhow, so I now had um, – I have five kids. Three have graduated from this high school. Two are still there. I don't think it's really hurt them. And they haven't even gotten beat up, which makes me think the world has changed because I did and in a, must, in a supposedly normal school. Of course, it could have just been me. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> But for my daughter was valedictorian, and um, my middle boy was valedictorian. My oldest boy, who can't spell, was fourth in his class. Uh, the first three all got free rides at the local 
University, UNM. Uh, so, so far, so good. Uh, and the first three are all physics math majors. Ooh. Uh, uh, Jenny is in uh, grad school in physics at Ohio State. Alex is in grad school at Arizona State. And Roddy is a, is a junior at uh, University of New Mexico. Uh, uh, so, no, I don't actually believe that, but I know everybody else believes it. Else, why would they spend so much money on either a private school or buying expensive real estate in some place with a, quote, good, unquote, school? Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, but they do. <laughs> but, but, you know, but if you believed in markets, you would say, well, there must be some reason. But to at least on this question, I don't believe in markets. <laughs> I think people are just wrong, uh, as they are in many other things. Uh, uh, but people think that. Uh, people base social policy on it, it, and then they try interventions based on it. I can't think of any of them that ever worked, but that doesn't seem to slow anybody down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say, you know, from what I know of formal behavioral genetics, uh, IQ has a high amount of narrow sense, you know, of, uh, heritability. Most of it's narrow sense heritability, additive effects. And there are other things that affect you, some of which are like, you know, accidents, unpleasant things. Uh, if you have, uh, you know, probably something as simple as being twins is a slight disadvantage because it is for, you know, height and other things. Uh, um, but the social things that people want to be the reasons, I think I know of no evidence at all that they're right. Okay. Um you talked about the potential of using genetics to increase human intelligence using CRISPR. What's the time frame on when it'll be possible to engineer babies that are significantly smarter now? That, that say that are for the average parent, you're the child would be significantly smarter because you've used genetics in that way. I'm not sure. Also, I'm sure that whatever we do first, we'll screw it up somehow. But eventually, people after you know. Uh, something that's either amusing or tragic will eventually learn how. Uh, I don't know. Uh, my guess is on the order of 20 years, but I could be wrong. I don't. Re- I I have read about that technology. It's not something I have you know got my hands into. I don't know in any detail, and it wouldn't help if I did because people who are at the cutting edge of things are usually terrible at figuring out what's going to be possible next. I can think of a number of examples in which people. Well, for example, they would have said you could never do anything that you could do with CRISPR mm-hmm. just a few years ago. Uh, or before Dolly, people said, well, you could never actually clone a mammal because you just can't. Uh, uh, if, you, if you are deep into the weeds on a particular modern method, you often have no idea on what's possible mm-hmm. uh, with, with the next step. Yeah. Uh, Cloning could be quite the game changer if we clone you know, the smartest people. I mean, I'm sure the clones will regress to the mean a bit. So they won't be quite as smart as the originals if the originals. Well, are we might geniuses. be able to give. That's true. It, if we knew what the environmental variables are, we might be able to control them and actually give them a better environment. But since we, and at least in a few senses, we could. We could probably make sure you never have to get typhoid or something. Yeah. Which some famous people had as a kid, right? Uh, although again, I don't know how much difference it makes. If it doesn't kill you, maybe it makes you stronger. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, we could. Uh, uh, and, in fact, I've certainly thought about that. See, because that doesn't involve understanding what's going on nearly as much. If you're cloning somebody, that doesn't mean you have to understand the interactions, etc., which genes are important. You're just copying. And that might be possible. Uh, and now, again, standard the standard opinions common among um, 
most of our educated people in this country would say, well, yeah, but you know, they won't be particularly like their twin any more than identical twins are alike today, which of course they are. Yes. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but you know, evidently, if you, uh, there's, there's perhaps a, a bit of a contradiction here. The same people I'm talking about who are provably wrong on, on that, you know, huge numbers of points are also the people who got selected for uh, by IQ tests or similar things to get into our premier universities. Mm -hmm. So I'm not absolutely sure if there's any hope anywhere on anything. But <laughs> uh, 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 cloning people is simpler in principle than changing them. I mean, in some ways, there might be technical difficulties of it because uh, you probably need to sequence very accurately because every mistake is a mutation if you're cloning somebody. Mm -hmm. But in principle, it's it, it's a lot. You don't have to understand it's something as complicated as all of human genetics to do it. You just have to learn how to copy perfectly, and that might be possible. Uh, and if it's true, then there's a lot of people whose uh, graves we should be guarding or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, Einstein. There's little bits of Einstein's brain that various people have in a jar. Uh, you could dig up John von Neumann. Uh, there would be a lot of interesting things to do. Uh, you would you would dig up Shakespeare, although I believe that's supposed to put a curse on you because, you know, there's you know, cursed be he who who bothers these bones or something like that. It's it's on the headstone. Uh, well, so maybe not. And also think of all the playwrights you put out of work. Uh, I mean, just having a couple of Shakespeare's, we probably wouldn't need most of the other guys. Yeah. Uh, but if you could do this, in a sense, it's more reliable. But it, it, but it doesn't have the same potential to go further. That, like, uh, when Steve Chu talks about this, he talks about, well, you know, it looks as if, you know, we have these v numbers of variants, and the number, and somebody we consider smart has moderately more uh, positive uh, variants than average. I mean, it's not like they have all. The, the smart variants, uh, probably no one ever has. Uh, now, Steve, of course, is hot to try that. And I, I will bet you money that if you did it, it wouldn't work. Really? Why? Uh, uh, well, because you're extrapolating a long way. Like when he talked about 30 standard deviations, mm -hmm. okay, well, if there's anything anywhere in the development of intelligence that doesn't extrapolate out a long way, then it won't work. Now, if I was talking making you taller, I would know what some of the failure modes were. I mean, if I made you 30 standard deviations taller, your bones would break because of the square cube law. Yes. Now, if there's anything that doesn't just keep perfectly happy in a design sense as you push further and further on this, uh, then, you pub then it probably doesn't go out to 30. Just saying. I mean, it doesn't mean that someday you couldn't figure out how to do it, but if you tried it first time, I figure the odds are you can't go that far. And I think actually Steve probably wouldn't disagree with me on that. Well, how far do you think we could go just without really understanding it, just getting the correlations between intelligence and various genes and putting them all together? What well, would your guess uh, be for the person you, to still be functional and sane and happy? Uh, well, people would said that you know von Neumann was functional and sane and happy, but other people said he was just so smart he could fake all those <laughs> things. Uh, the, uh, you know, I mean, among... You know, physicists and math types in the 20th century, the people who knew him, many of them would say he's cleverer than anybody else. Right. I mean, and this is, uh, I mean, this is like Wigner talking, and he would say, well, I've known a number of intelligent people, uh, 
I mean, I, too, am a Nobel Prize winner in physics. Paul Dirac is my brother-in-law, blah, blah, blah. I went to high school with Johnny uh, along with uh, uh, several other famous people. Uh, Einstein is a good friend of mine, etc. But everybody knows Johnny's more clever than any of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there were people who knew, uh, and you know, and he wasn't you know an evil genius or anything. Unless, well, maybe if you were Stalin, you would have thought so. But uh, uh, it is at least possible to be as smart as him and not be a complete loon. But I'll tell you, the odds get worse and worse. And that is something that you don't see people admitting all the time. But uh, among people who are a lot smarter than average, uh, they are more likely than average to be various kinds of crazy. It is a fact. Uh, yes, yeah, certainly uh, autism is the very high autism rates among people with exceptional math yeah, ability. I don't like that word, but I don't have a better one for uh, you know certain funny personality types. Mm-hmm. Uh, like of those people I was mentioning on that, I mean, it's not everyone, but the point is it's a lot more common. And if anything, it's even more true perhaps in physics, I mean, in math than in physics. But for example, if you think of the, the guys who were the founders of quantum mechanics, you know, not a bunch of dummies, you know, Schrodinger, Heisenberg. Now, the guy who was considered the brightest and not the only guy who did big things, but, you know, the cleverest was probably Dirac, and Dirac was strange. Mm-hmm. Most of the other guys were not terribly strange. I mean, maybe they weren't dead average, but, I mean, one could imagine them dancing (laughs) with a girl. Uh, And, by the way, Dirac eventually learned, and he said, hey, that's good, but he's the sort of guy who can actually interact with and seem, you know, be interested in and be interesting to a girl after he's won his Nobel Prize. Oh, (laughs) that probably Uh, helps a bit. It helps. Uh, uh, in fact, I remember one guy who got it quite young who never did anything else afterwards, uh, 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 Brian Josephson. Uh, so, uh, but, yeah, I mean, uh, I was, I think, talking to, uh, uh, I was talking to someone about this, and they said, you know, there, there's a noticeable correlation between these, you know, we'll, I guess Asperger's is as good a word as any, although, again, I don't think it's a perfect, mm-hmm. a great category, but it's, it's, it's describing something that the, Frequency. This is is it's correlated with higher IQs. Uh, I think particularly in guys. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think you'd probably be. Incre- I mean, there again, it's not everybody, but it's just an inordinate number. Uh, there's a recent Fields medalist uh, from South Africa. What's his name? Uh, they had an interview with him in the New York Times, and I said. You know, I don't particularly like the New York Times myself, but I don't think I'd be afraid of a reporter. And he clearly was, you know, extremely uncomfortable. And then later they had an article in Science about, uh, again, they were sort of talking about this topic. And they decided to talk about a particular Fields medalist, but, you know, wanted to. But you, you couldn't tell. They, they left out some of the details. So it could be any of the millions of Fields <laughs> medalists. So you could figure out who he was in about 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, um, but he's strange. Uh, I mean, and there have been other famous guys, not and not wrongly famous guys who really did something important, who were a lot stranger than anybody I knew. Uh, you know, Alan Turing was strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think Alonzo Cushing was strange. Maybe just working with a propositional calculus is, does things to you. But uh, 
But but did you, from what you've heard of von Neumann, he wasn't strange, or was he strange? And he was he might have just been faking not being strange because he was. So that smart. has been suggested that he could just fake anything. He, but well, you know, it's it's like suppose you're running an emulation of, uh, uh, you know, like for some reason you have a game and you're mm-hmm. you're, you're you're running an emulation of DOS or an earlier version of Windows or something. Well, you'd need a pretty fast computer to do a good job of faking an old one. Yeah. So I figure you have to probably be as smart as by Neumann to fake being a semi-normal human being when you're not. Uh, uh, but it would be useful because, like, one of the things von Neumann was good at was being sensible, which uh, extremely smart people, we would like to think that they are, but at least on certain topics, they're not. Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, and and that's, uh, you know, potentially worrisome. Uh, uh, for example, uh, in the 30s, among the circles that von Neumann ran in, which is, you know, professional mathematicians and people like that, it was, it became really common to be a big fan of the Soviet Union. But that was foolish. Mm -hmm. And I said, why does no one become a big fan of Canada? (laughs) Why does no one become a big fan of Switzerland? Uh, I mean, actually, I've heard of people who, like, move there because everybody else in Europe was trying to kill them and the Swiss would not. And I'm sure they at least developed a grudging respect for the Swiss, but uh, uh, von Neumann said, well, like later, some of those people were potentially not going to get hired simply because they'd been a member of the Communist Party or something. And he opposed that. He said his opinion was, well, you know, they're just like that. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no point in expecting people to be what they aren't. Uh, and maybe he's right. Uh, uh, but he could be sensible. Like he liked the United States because, well, for one thing, Nobody was trying to kill him. There weren't any death camps. He thought there were many good things about the United States. People would talk about, you know, making money instead of, you know, some ideological reason that the uh, that somebody shouldn't be allowed to exist. So he liked this country, uh, and and he was a smart and he he also had uh, good predictive skills. Uh, um, he could sometimes see what was coming next. Like enough, for example, to get the hell out of Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was telling people shortly after Hitler got in, maybe even before, but when it looked like he'd get in, he said, bad, bad, bad things are going to happen. And people said, no, no, Germany's the most cultured country. And he said, and he said that's what they said about Athens. And then he starts quoting you know, a, f- a famous dialogue of the Thucydides in which the Athens are voting whether to kill and enslave everybody on this island that's revolted against them. Uh, he said, I went out of here. <laughs> Uh, and he tried to get as much of his family out as possible, which was some of them. Um, but, uh, but you know, uh, I mean, for example, it would be interesting if we were talking, for example, about behavioral genetics. Suppose I were to say you know, the most fundamental thing which we know, which is everything, essentially every behavioral trait is ranges from kind of uh, heritable to pretty heritable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Uh, well, I'm sure that uh, if I went to uh, Harvard, I would find fewer people agreeing with that, even though it's easy to demonstrate, than I would at State U. Yeah, Maybe I'm wrong. Now, now, I'm sure Smith's is entirely different. <laughs> I'm, by different, I mean even worse. Oh, yeah. There was a panel on inequality in which I was speaking, and I started by saying, well, you know, a lot of income inequality is is – caused by genetics and the students looked at me as if I'd just been swearing they were completely shocked would they not even count illness I because you know that <laughs> actually gets in your way 
Yeah, that's a good argument. I should, I should have said that. Sometimes you have to build up to these things. Yeah. Uh, you remind, by the way, Smith, it's not your fault. Uh, I once knew, <laughs> I once knew somebody who'd gone to Smith, a uh, very nice young lady, and uh, she was telling me a story about how she'd been um, chased out of the fire escape by somebody who was 200 pounds, uh, wearing a marine marine uh, uniform, but who was a girl, of course. At any rate, the uh, Smith hasn't hasn't really changed, I don't think. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's many things in which the uh, uh, the socially preferred, mostly liberal point of view is, uh, you know, wrong on the facts. But so are a lot of other points of view. But I think they they work at it harder than. Uh, to, so I mean, certainly on on this general topic of things like. Uh, uh, heritability of and in, in, in how does biology affect personality and intelligence? Uh, they're pretty bad. Uh, they're pretty. They want it. They, I mean, to the point where they are, you know, pretty unhappy. If you, I mean, sometimes mentioning simple statistics will make people unhappy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you wouldn't think that uh, you know, like if I said, you know, fact X, it's been measured many times. They said, well, that that's just unbearable. I said. Oh yeah, it reminds me of a of, of a story. Uh, Herman Kahn was uh, you know famous as a nuclear strategist and being the inspiration partly for uh, Doctor Strangelove and other things. And one day he was talking to people about how uh, after nuclear war there would be more irradiation, there would be more birth defects. Perhaps as many as two to three percent of kids would have at least something genetically wrong with them. And a girl listening says, well, I wouldn't want to live in a world like that. And he said, well, I lied. Those are the current statistics. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, and, and I think most, and it, again, in many, many cases, probably the majority, it's an emotionally held thing, and it's not something you can very successfully uh, argue about, you know, bringing up a bunch of facts. Uh, I was talking this is a topic we might eventually get to, but mm-hmm. I was talking with my uh, oldest son about how, in principle, you could make people live a lot longer than they currently do today, which is not to say that we have any real detailed ideas of how to, but certainly in principle. And right. he had gotten into that discussion later with some people in his physics department, and they were saying, no, I don't know. I mean, it's just natural for things to gradually wear down, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, but you can reduce entropy with enthalpy. <laughs> And then they said, "Oh, I guess you're right." <sighs> yeah. See, that's a physics argument. That's mm-hmm. those. They're strange. They're really strange people. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I mean that is an interesting point. I mean, a lot of people don't want to extend human lifespan, and I mean, I, one thing you can say to people is, "Well, so if the average human lived to be a thousand, and you got a disease that caused you to only live to be a hundred, would you be happy because of this disease?" Probably they would, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, now, by the way, if you want to make a thousand, you would also have to live a fairly conservative lifestyle just to cut you, because at some point the accident rate. Suppose you didn't age, you can mm-hmm. still be hit by a car, you can still have things happen to you. Uh, so, for example, the age at which, like, if you could freeze your risk at the level of a certain age, the best age to pick is, I think, eleven, mm-hmm. because you're not making a lot of the mistakes that a small child makes, and you're not yet involved with cars, liquor, or the opposite sex. <laughs> and I believe that you're, so you have a, you'd have a half-life of, I don't forget, something like a thousand years uh, 
if you could just stay an 11 year old or or live like an 11 year old not everybody would want to do that uh but if you live like a normal american your half life would probably be a few hundred good deal less than a thousand you know probably is car accidents as much as anything mm-hmm. uh so if you if we give you this you then have to if you really want to live a thousand years you probably have to uh you never drive a long distance. You might take airplanes. They're a lot safer. You might not travel much at all. You probably don't get drunk. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things you won't do. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll probably uh, have self-driving cars before we have um, people able to live to a thousand. So, even if it's harder, uh, as I mentioned once on the blog, I don't. People, you know, some people are against it, and other people. You know, it's they don't want to try, I, even if they're not absolutely against it. And why is this? I don't know. So uh, I have to ask you about a blog post. I'm not sure if you were joking or not, but you you said one never one never is. Go ahead. Okay. You you said that you you couldn't find a logical reason for the complete disinterest in longevity research shown by the powers that be. So you suggested maybe they already understand. You know, they have the secret of immortality, and they're just not sharing it with the rest of us. And and I elaborated by saying that means every so often you have to fake your own death. Yes. And then go underground and then reappear sometime in the future. We started listing all the, you know, how this was true of Andy Kaufman, Jim Morrison, uh, and of course, uh, if you're important enough, you may even break the, the rules of the secret masters. So you, you know, in full uniform, you show up in some strip mall every now and then just to freak people out. And so they will write, you know, articles will be written about this in the National Enquirer, but no one will pay any attention. Yes. Uh, yeah, Elvis. Elvis as the secret ruler, which would explain a lot. Uh, but no, I don't believe that. I uh, uh, I have looked pretty hard at trying to understand, you know, the people who make key decisions in this country, who influencers, uh, executives, politicians. I said, what do they know? And the answer is not really very much. They really don't. Uh, um, and they aren't even very good at getting expert advice because they can't even tell who's an expert and who's not. It's, I mean, if you don't know anything, how would you? Uh, no, they're, they, they are, they have speech writers, they have advisors. Mm-hmm. Without them, they would probably just lie up there and twitch in front of the camera. So they don't really know very much. So you don't think we have a secret elite that are running things for their own benefit with really no, intelligent I mean, strategies? In, in the language of. Well, I mean, once in a while, I mean, if we're talking about single-step extrapolations of people saying, if I can get that building condemned, um, or if I can get that – let's suppose if I can get this highway built here and I've already bought a bunch of farmland right next to it mm-hmm. just because I'm Speaker of the House, yeah. Dennis Hastert, yes, you can, you can plot – you can make some money. And they do some things like that. But, you know, if we're talking about triple bank shots, I don't think they ever happen on purpose. I think that most people are just sort of, you know, they say what other people say. They go along with what the current trend is. Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of, uh, of you know, secret masters. Uh, or if I was talking in the language of 1984, I said there is no inner party. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think. I mean, again, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't push for something, but that doesn't mean that's what you'll get. I mean, for example, if you have a lot of elaborate plans, but they come up with completely different outcomes, how Machiavellian are you really? Right. Uh, I mean, I'm, I would bet that most of the people who pushed invade in Iraq weren't looking forward to the Islamic State of Iraq. No. 
And by the way, that's the good part. How is opposed ISIS or something? Oh, yeah, no, they thought we were going to. That's the Shiite part. Yeah. Yeah, they thought we were going to do to Iraq what we did to Japan and Germany after World War II. Um, I didn't, but (laughs) I, uh, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a strange person. I thought they were fucking insane. Uh, And uh, turned out to be right. Oh, I, I wrote to a few friends and things. I got published on a couple of blogs and things. Uh, but I also, uh, I mean, you know, on the technical angle, you know, we were being sold that there was probably a nuclear program in Iraq. Mm-hmm. But there, it was obvious there wasn't. They're hard to do. Uh, but, but some of it involves knowing things you're not supposed to know. Mostly not. Most of it is just knowing things that would take work. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no actual social prohibition from learning about how nuclear weapons are made. I mean, nobody does it, and it might mark you out as a little nerdy, but it, you wouldn't get fired just because you secretly had read about gaseous diffusion. Right. Uh, not that any politician does, but uh, but there were some things you weren't supposed to know. Funny things, and I don't know what to think about them. I've actually heard uh, talking to a certain person with who with enviable hair at Harvard. Mm-hmm. That could be a lot of people, of course. A psychologist with enviable hair. Okay. Harvard. But that, again, probably a lot of people, right? Yeah. Anyhow, that person was once telling me that uh, that uh, when Harvard professors adopt, they use criteria that are roughly connected to reality. So, oh. for example, like one of the problems with adoption today, as opposed to adoption in 1900, it was that uh, – see – it was not that, you know, kids were probably abandoned because your parents had both been hit by a train or died of typhoid or something like that. Mm-hmm. Today, of those kids available, they're more likely to have a parent who was, say, mentally ill. Right. And so if you adopt somebody, you're unfortunately, you know, f- from, say, the United States in that situation, you're getting a kid who's a lot more likely to have heritable tendencies to be mentally ill. Oh, I see. So Harvard and Harvard professors go out of their way to. They weren't doing any of those things. Yeah. They were adopting Chinese kids, uh. Chinese girls. It was almost as if they knew that there was a difference between the sexes as well. Now, uh, Greg and I discuss an interesting anti-aging technique: uh-huh. getting young blood injected into you or transfused into you. Parabiosis. Yes. Many. many it goes back many years. People notice when they put made a graft between young mice. And old mice, they mm-hmm. old mice got better. I mean, this is so old. I mean, this is a known thing, but nobody pushed it. Nobody really looked. Again, there's a lot of things like that. But let me tell you how old it is. Mm-hmm. This is the stock mechanism used in the book Brave New World. Oh. But the work was done before Huxley wrote that. It was in the 20s. Okay, so they're reviving it. Is it, it – might there be something to it? Quite possibly. And you've but, heard – you know, yeah. One would hope that if we get anywhere with this, I, mean, I could also remember Heinlein has it in some of his science fiction stories. Mm-hmm. If, I don't know if you've read any of those. I, I, but, it was uh, a while ago, but yeah, I've read most of them. Uh, if you've read like uh, the uh, Methuselah's Children, mm-hmm. that was now there was an attempt at selection for people who live longer. But after a while, people find artificial ways of doing having with having similar effects. Right. And one of them is they end up with. Uh, cultured blood grown in artificial blood banks, and they essentially make young blood and give it to people, which, by the way, I think is a better idea than just you know harnessing a whole lot of peasants somewhere <laughs> and, and you know flying out into their through their window at night, uh, uh, which is I presume Thiel's approach. Uh, 
Well, I... you got to admit, you got to admit, it's kind of it's got a certain amount of class, though. Uh, well, it could provide I'm a very just... nice income source for a lot of poor people if we could, you know, buy their blood. Am I hearing that awful economist stuff start to seep out of you there? Probably, like... but well, why? I mean, well, why not? It would be, you know, if we're. Well, for one reason, because technically it probably is not very hard to make those artificial blood banks. People are already working on it. Okay. And the advantage would be that we don't have to drain a bunch of peasants uh, because, you know, well, I mean, there would, this would, if we used what you're thinking, it would never get abused to the point where people are, you know, look kind of sallow and green and fall down every now and then because people are too sensible, right? And, and, the, and the people getting them, they are too nice to ask for a little extra blood when they need it, right? Well, there would certainly be some abuses, but if they weren't donating blood or selling blood, they'd be doing something else where they'd be getting a bit abused. They'd be making iPhones and, you know, that's, that's a whole lot better, isn't it? Uh, Depends on how much you're getting paid. For the blood, I, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, when we when we supported Kosovo becoming Kosovo becoming sort of kind of independent, mm -hmm. uh, the leading organizations that were fighting the Serbs, KLA, were basically a bunch of smugglers. But you have to give them credit; it's not every smuggler that actually kills people and sells their organs. That actually happens. Not a lot. <laughs> Yeah, sure it does. Now, I mean, the Chinese used to have a, a more sensible way of doing it. What they would do is they would keep guys in jail, and mm -hmm. then you would say, I need a kidney transplant, and then they would shoot them. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they shoot the right guy, somebody who's compatible. Yeah. Uh, uh, they claim they're not doing that anymore. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't very long ago. Uh, uh, but at uh, any rate, yeah, I, I think uh, – Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm sure that selling yourself into slavery, there's all sorts of good economic arguments for it, too. But I I have my doubts, okay? Oh. And uh, I know there are people who sell a kidney, and I suspect uh, it would be better if we were putting more effort, say more than we put into Facebook, into artificial kidneys. Mm -hmm. We have Now we start talking about an economic conference that Greg attended. Uh, I went to this uh, talk at the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I gave a talk. Henry gave a talk. We were supposed to be introducing some biology to uh, – it's online if you ever want to – it's on YouTube if you ever want to take a look at okay. it. I mean my, it was just – I had a very basic talk. I said biology matters. Everything's heritable there. I mean <laughs> think about this, guys. Uh, but there were a number of people there, uh, uh, but some of them probably knew more about this than I did. Some of them were guys who have been involved in some of these GWS studies, uh, you know, looking for these uh, uh, plus and negative, uh, plus and minus alleles on IQ. They, several of the guys who had organized that were there, right. uh, younger guys, and uh, well worth talking to. Uh, there were some other people who had never thought about biology being an issue, human biology being an issue in economics, but were interested and then there were several other people who said, boy, that sure is evil, and no one should ever talk about it. Uh, Durlauf, for example, uh, was in that category. I mean, he, I, I had not realized there were even economists who wrote special uh, economist-type arguments of why you could not believe the results of twin studies. But, of course, that was all horseshit. Uh, I mean, anybody who's even known any twins, uh, you know, knows that they're incredibly similar. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
that's always one thing. Like, like some of the of the conclusions of things like behavioral genetics, it always struck me. I said, but everybody knew that, didn't they? Well, I mean, like, did you know that things run in families? <laughs> did you also? I'm not. Per, I mean, by the way, they, you wouldn't have if you knew. You wouldn't have thought that uh, it was 100 percent either. But but still a reasonable tendency. Uh, I. I, or when I mentioned that, uh, like, you know, a, a, a goat herder in the year 900 A.D. knows more about the problems of cousin marriage than the average uh, graduate of Smith. Yeah, almost certainly. Uh, uh, and by the way, you know, when they came up, when the Catholic Church came up with its rules against uh, basically cousin marriage, mm-hmm. uh, they gave to... One argument they gave is they thought it would help break down tribes. People would intermarry. There would be more relationships between groups. They wouldn't all be sealed into little endogamous groups, mm-hmm. which is probably true. But I will also bet that a fair number of them knew because, you know, it was this thing that, like, every farmer knew. He said that you could have problems with it. Do, I mean, do, every stock breeder. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think not, with the, the Catholic Church doing that played a big role in the, the relative rise of the West? Probably, and that's probably why nobody ever talks about it. Uh, I mean, for one thing, to talk about it, you would have to uh, you'd have to have a clear idea of what it does. And although that information is easy to get, I don't think it's very widely known. No. I mean, I think people usually think of, well, being against cousin marriage, that's some old-fashioned idea. You could probably uh, get away with by saying we have to stop cousin marriages among hillbillies in West Virginia and get intellectuals to all agree, and then say, oh, you know, it's also really and Saudi common. Arabia too. Yeah, so there too, and then it would be but hard for them to say. But they don't do well, it in West Virginia. But, <laughs> well, <go ahead. laughs> but the stereotype well, but, is they do, so you could probably. Yeah, well, there there are things like that where I've, I've often thought I could just convince people to do X, which the, which of course would have the exact opposite. <laughs> I mean, here you're just being tangential, but. Right. Uh, like uh, I could easily imagine a number of things which would be very easy to do and says, well, we'll disprove, you know, this noxious theory X once and for all because you know it can't be true, right? Wouldn't you like to prove it? Uh, and then, which I said, well, of course, it actually would prove it. But... <laughs> we now discuss the book A Farewell to Alms. Yeah, Gregory you know Clark's that book. book. Is about. Yes, that yeah. book is about selection for making people smarter, but not everywhere. Well, let's right? quick talk about that. I mean, that the argument is that one of the reasons Britain industrialized first was because there was selection pressures. The author says maybe cultural, but um, certainly possibly genetic for traits that are useful in a capitalist society. Do you, do you think? By the way, it wasn't just England. I mean, otherwise, you know, why do you think there's a whole lot more evolution than Germany caught up in the next twenty years or something? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, I've read it. I've talked to him. It's not implausible, uh, but it would it would go like this. It would be saying that some kinds of societies, over an extended period, it's got to be over an extended period for much to change, have given higher rewards to certain kinds of certain kinds of minds, certain kinds of personality mm-hmm. uh, that uh, maybe were smarter, maybe look farther ahead. Uh, you can argue this may have been happening to some extent in some places after you started farming. Farming has built into it a lot of long you know, things that take a long time to get a payoff compared mm-hmm. to being a hunter-gatherer, which typically there's nothing much like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might even say that certain things like uh, developing uh, uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean things like olive and uh, 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 you know raising olives and, and uh, grapes because it takes years before those things are productive, but they're very they can be very profitable once they finally come on. Uh, you know, so you start talking about the guys who can look five years ahead, eight years ahead, 15 years ahead, maybe. Uh, and 
was this probably more true in some places than others, assuming it was true at all? Yeah, it could be. But, you know, I don't really think there's a whole lot of difference between, like, Germany and England because there isn't now. Right. But, uh, but can I believe it was true that there was some pressure in this direction as opposed to, uh, say, among a bunch of people who were uh, uh, killing seals for a living or something? I, well, by the way, you need to plan a fair amount as Eskimos, but but it's, it's still it's different. Uh yeah, it's it's quite possibly true, but I don't think England is so special genetically. How uh, long? It, how what does time frame have to be for you to be able to make significant things changes? Things like this. Yeah. A few hundred thousand, couple thousand years. Okay. You're not going to have it happen in one generation. I mean, unless you're Stalin. Stalin could have changed genetic. You know, he could just make Group X completely disappear, oh. or Hitler. But uh, uh, basically, I mean, if you if you have sort of plausible models of the sort I've looked at, you could. A thousand years is not ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, if something was really unusual, it might be five hundred. So, uh, something like that. Uh, so yeah, it could be. Uh, it could go the other direction too, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> Which, like we're doing right now. Yeah. Uh, and we now know it because we measure. You know, some of those plus and minus alleles—they've measured the frequency change, and they're going down. The plus ones, that is. The, but not very, not very fast. There is a type of mutation that causes a cancer called retinoblastoma. Mm-hmm. Okay, and if you have, like, you can get this can happen. Uh, you could, and such that, you know, normally you have two copies of a certain gene that helps protect against cancers. If you have bad luck, or you you could either be a new mutation, or you might inherit this from a parent. Mm-hmm. And you'll see why. The, it, by the way, nobody used to inherit it from a parent because it they all died. Okay. But what happens is if you have this, every cell in your body has only one copy. If you lose one more copy, certain cells in your eye are very prone to a cancer that will kill you without surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you have this, not only will you inevitably get it in one eye, you'll get it in the other eye too. Because every cell is only one step away from doing this. Oh. Okay, all right. It used to be people had this form of retinoblastoma. There's another form where one single cell just goes screwy. Right. And that one is not every cell in your body. That one's not inherited. That way you only lose one eye. But this one you always lose too. Now, it used to be in every case it was a new mutation because nobody ever survived this. Mm-hmm. Today, although you will be blind, some people survive an extended period, and they might have kids. And, and theory basically says, let's suppose they had just as many as average. I doubt if they do, but they let's right. suppose it. Right. Okay. Then the number, the, the frequency of a broken retinostep retinoblastoma gene doubles in one generation. See, previously it was just whatever the number that gets created in new each generation, mm-hmm. and, but none were ever passed on. Now you can have all the ones created in this generation and all the ones created in the last. It doubles in one generation. Uh-huh. Now, most things are not like this. Very few things are like this. I mean, for one thing, you'd have to have medicine get well enough that you could deal with it better. Right. But, uh, so some things are probably, you know, that one's increasing. For sure, right? And some other, and lots of smaller things are, but the things with smaller effects are are also decreasing more slowly. So anyhow, mutational accumulation is happening, but I can't put a number on it. Eventually, it would be a problem. I don't think it really is yet. Well, hopefully, CRISPR will be able to solve that relatively uh, soon. Can, you know, I know a lot of people, and I don't want to, you know, be mean or anything, but it seems to me that basing your social policies on, uh. Did you ever read Great Expectations? Uh, no, no. There's this phrase that it seems our hero keeps, although he's broke and doing stupid things, he keeps saying, something will turn up. And that's a crazy way. Like, like, like 
what if it doesn't work? Mm-hmm. What, if it, what if it's too complicated to do? What if it's not easy enough to do? What if it has too high an error rate? In other words, do you want to rely on a policy that might work and that the society falls apart if it doesn't, yeah. but nobody knows whether it'll ever work? Yeah, but the problem is with population growth, we, we kind of are counting on ways of radically increasing our food supply. So we without future technological improvements, we're in really deep trouble unless we do something to like force a lot of people to have fewer kids. But at least that's something we know how to do. I mean, yeah. in some of these other things, you're talking about something no one knows if we can do it. I'm not saying it's ridiculous to mm-hmm. think we might. So uh, you had an interesting blog post about, you said the Battle of Stalingrad, you think that Stalin might have used biological weapons? I think it's highly likely. And but I can't get anybody interested in it. But I'll tell you why. Okay. Here's why. Here's why. Okay. First, uh, there was a tularemia outbreak among the German troops at Stalingrad. It also hit some of the Russians. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're talking more than 100,000 cases. Okay. One, tularemia is known to be uh, a useful uh weapon of the sort, because it has a low dose. Uh, you can, like, you can have a 50, 50% chance of an infection with, like, one one bacterium in your lungs. Mm-hmm. Second, it's not spread person to person. How do you get 100,000 people to get it if it's not spread person to person? In my blog post, I think I said that about 18 times. I couldn't, most people couldn't seem to understand the point. Well, you couldn't have contaminated water that doesn't do it? It can happen, but it's always been on a small scale. I mean, it's. it's uh, I mean, there have been other cases where, like, you can have dust from, uh, uh, you know, it's basically from, it's carried by mice or something, mm-hmm. uh, small ground rodents, and if they, you have little bits of their poop gets aerosolized when you're, you know, beating the, the grain or something, but, you know, no one's ever, there were never any, all right, mm-hmm. there were never any mass outbreaks anywhere else in the world, any other time in the world, except there were some others in Russia in World War II. Next, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, there was a time in which you could hire a whole Soviet research team of 25 guys and some specialized equipment for the, the same price as one American scientist. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend at Los Alamos who was doing that. They had some guys who were doing turbulence studies. They hired all of them for like $60,000 a year, the whole group. <laughs> and he worked with them. He went over and talked to the guys. And so one of the guys he was liaising with, uh, he was talking to him over uh, – uh, over supper or something, and he he took out this you know here was the napkin and, and he was like drawing says oh yes my dad he was a he was a pilot in the Great Patriotic War, and here you know near Leningrad he dropped tularemia and here and here and here. Now most people like to make up nasty stories about their father, right? Yeah. I mean you probably have gone around <laughs> explaining how your father is really Richard Speck or something, right? <laughs> At any rate, two, three. There was a guy. Uh, Ken Alabek, who worked in uh, the Soviet uh, uh, biowarfare, mm-hmm. and the way he got in, and this was much later, you know, this was like you know 70s or something. He had been a student of microbiology, and he was supposed to. They gave him some data about the about the outbreaks at Stalingrad, right, and some of the others. And he said, "Well, analyze that." And he says, "I don't know what to think. I mean, the only thing I can think of is it looks like it was dropped, but but I don't understand." And they said, "They said." You never thought that. You, you never said that. You never thought that. Do you want a job? So why would we be afraid of someone coming to that conclusion now? Oh, well, I'll get to that. But there's okay. a couple of more pieces. They had a vast effort at making things, anthrax, mm-hmm. smallpox, other things. I mean, we had a treaty that says they would not do it. But they did it anyhow. They spent vast amounts on it. 
Right. You may have heard of that one little accident they had at Sverdlovsk where somebody forgot to put an air filter on and they and anthrax blew down through the town. Yes, Unfortunately, yes. it only killed 70 people or so because it was kind of in a straight line. The wind didn't vary. Mm-hmm. By the way, there was some Harvard professor who who believed who and investigated and believed all the things the Russians told him about how it was contaminated meat, which you have to, of course you have to grind it into a into a dust and inhale that meat to get <laughs> pulmonary anthrax. But anyway, Matthew Messelson, he'd been involved in the treaty, and so that was a reason that it had to work because uh-huh. otherwise he would look like he was an idiot, which he was. Uh, I watched this at the time when it came out in science. I said, "You're a fool." Anyway. Okay, they put a lot of money into it. There is a lesson. When people put billions into something, more often than not, it's because they believe in it. Right. So, like, why did we put so much money in the NSA going back many years? Yeah, because of the success we had in World War II. Yes. Okay, why do the Russians put so much money into germ warfare? Because of the success they had in World War II. That's also uh, reading um, Bevor's book on Stalingrad. The sick, you know, the number of people on sick call was up six times normal before they got surrounded, before they ran among the German troops. Mm-hmm. Now, next question is, why would you do this? Because in principle, it's kind of a dangerous thing to do because the Germans would probably be better at it if they caught on. Right. But the thing is, in '42, it was a little bit only worse, like that order backs to the wall. Uh, in fact, they had a similar order, general order Stalin put when they had the offensive going on in the south in 42. Mm-hmm. said, not one step back. They were afraid they're going to lose. Now, in the long run, you might worry if you start a game the other guy might be better at. But you have to – but getting to the long run is the first goal. Not losing right now mm-hmm. is, is, the, is the first goal. So – I mean, the next question is, I mean, other thing is, we know they were working on it. We know they had a vaccine for it. We know Joseph Stalin was head of the Soviet Union. We know the Germans had gotten all the way to Stalingrad. If you think about it, it's got to They had to use it. You would have used it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, especially if I thought I was likely to lose, absent that. Well, what's the worst that would happen if the Nazis conquered you? I mean, sure. <laughs> Yeah, that was a uh, So, of course they did. Anyhow, but those are the lines of evidence I know. I mean, I, re- I remember reading a whole book about the uh, – I read strange things. A whole book about the uh, about the, the epidemics of that sort. Uh, I mean, uh, the typical phrase, in the oblast formerly occupied by the fascist insects. It was a great book. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but they had a number of outbreaks in, in 44 and so forth. Uh the thing is, it's a trick because the Germans might have noticed it, but they're less likely to notice it if you surround the place and most of them don't get out. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, some did, but it helps if a lot of the people who might have been wondering about this get other things on their mind, like, gee, do I have any chance of surviving in a Soviet prison camp? Uh, but, right. you know, I think it was a calculated bet. I bet they were nervous as hell while they were doing it. So their plan was to do that and then surround it and make sure. No, the plan was to do that, hope they don't lose, and then do all the regular things they do, which, of course, would be surrounding it. But if that works right, one extra benefit is it, it decreases the chance that they'll understand what happened. But one thing, you know, it's, there's so much chaos and death and everything, it's hard to, you know, to pick the pieces together mm-hmm. apart as to what was happening to who. But I think, it, I think they did it as a calculated risk. They were worried it wouldn't work. Because, I mean, not working is when uh, the Germans find out about it because they would have been better. Uh, uh, and for some time, they had enough Air Force that could have delivered it. 
Uh, but there were other things like that. Like, you know, the Germans knew how to make nerve gas. Nobody else mm-hmm. did. But they didn't use it. And their argument was, well, but, you know, the article that talked about it was really, I think, connected with insecticides. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in Switzerland. Everybody's read it. They all know about it. They probably just as ready to do it as we were. That wasn't the case. If they had used it first, they would have had at least a window in which they were the only ones with it for a while. I think that window would have not lasted terribly long against the U.S. or England, but it might have caused a lot of trouble. And the other thing is, you see, but anyhow, you're saying, why do they not want people to know? Right. Because it makes people think that germ warfare is effective, which done properly, it is. But you see, germ warfare is much cheaper than nuclear weapons. Oh. I mean, look, there are people who say this in stupider ways. Like, well, if, like, like, it would be prudent to do underground tests of some of our weapons to see what shape they're in. Right. Because they're old. But people say, but then people will think that nuclear weapons are useful if we go around doing stuff. He says, they already know. (laughs) Well, I said, but maybe they don't. I said, you mean they're crazier than you? (laughs) No, there are people in the Pentagon, people like Ashton Carter, they think things like that because they're nuts. They think if we don't test our weapons, that'll cause countries like Iran to have less desire to acquire them? Hard to believe when you say it in so many words, but yes. Anyhow, there's a similar thought, and it's a little more based on practicality because it isn't as widely known. And by the way, and even when they're effective, they're not as effective as nuclear weapons. Right. At least tularemia isn't. There might be something else that is. Anthrax could be pretty effective. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, other people made it. The British were all ready to use anthrax if England was invaded. I mean, they didn't want to do it otherwise because, again, they were saying, you know, well, let's go, we'll end up – we'll lose more people on both sides perhaps, even if we still win the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Germans made a mistake. If they had used uh, – I've seen estimates of how much more trouble uh, is caused by the same tonnage of nerve gas rather than high explosive, mm-hmm. 30, 40 times more. And there were times if they had made it early in the war and used it in the in in on Russia, you know, if if you you know there were German air raids on Moscow, but if they had been 30 or 40 times more effective. It might have it might have made a strategic difference. I don't know. Why do you they think, didn't do it? Why didn't the Germans use it against D-Day? They never prepared. Well, see, part of it is after a while, all your reasons change because you're saying, uh, what's the thing you ultimately worry about? Somebody dropping poison gas on a big city. Right. Okay. Suppose they had, we had hit some of the troops on D-Day. Okay. Well, we had bombers flying over every city in Germany every night. Oh, okay. They they could at that point, they see if you wait too long you can't do it anymore. They they could barely get it. They only got two airplanes. Oh, by the way, this also would have limited. It. You know how many planes they got to fly over D Day? No. Two. <laughs> okay, so. Okay, and how you know how easy it was at this point for them to fly over England even to do photo recon? Very difficult. Mm-hmm. Most of those planes didn't come back, so they couldn't really, you know, the fact that one one guys have an overwhelming air force and you no longer do. That means that since that's the only practical way in those days to deliver it, I think, although maybe you could have put it into a V2, uh, mm-hmm. possible. But anyhow, there are probably other reasons that are not terribly strategically rational. Uh, Hitler had been exposed to poison gas and was temporarily blind in a hospital for months in World War One. I. I don't think he liked it. <laughs> no. Those, those things matter. I mean, you know, the mere fact the guy at the top doesn't want to do it – that can that can be a that can be a reason, or I mean, or the other way. In World War One, Fritz Haber, he's the guy who came up with the, uh, you know, the original the way to make synthetic nitrates, mm-hmm. which Germany had to have for fertilizer and explosives. Mm-hmm. 
and because he was now a big guy, he said, "Well, I can use my the powers of chemistry to win the war for mighty Imperial Germany, which I love so much." And he's the guy who pushed using poison gas, uh-huh. and it might not have happened without it. By the way, it didn't make a strategic difference. It was about even after a short time, mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't that much more effective. I mean, it wasn't like nerve gas. Nerve gas is dangerous stuff. So what's the nerve gas? You don't have to breathe in. It just has to touch your skin. You get a drop. You get a single drop on your skin. It'll usually kill you. In a, you'll stop breathing in a minute. So I, why aren't terrorists using that? Or is it too hard to make if you're not a state it's actor? It's been dumb. I have only know of one group that tried. Uh, Om Shinriko, mm-hmm. uh, this nut group in Japan, they released some nerve gas in the subway. I think they killed on the or, or hurt on the order of 10 people or something. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, the average te- terrorist group is not technically very skilled. That's why they don't see, you don't see them making doomsday devices and stuff. Uh, they they have, you know, they're limited in capabilities. Uh, they can't do that much. I mean, the average country can't do that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, sub, no, nerve gas is not that hard. There's a lot of countries that could if they really wanted to. Uh, but, uh, but I mean, but they they used it in Syria recently. Mm. That was nerve gas. Okay. Killed, killed somewhere between a few hundred and a thousand people. Uh uh, and that's a strange story too, because we at first, you know, it looked as if the the uh, Assad's government had done it, and then we looked and we found out that the the weapons they fired only had about a quarter of the range it took to get from territory they owned to where they landed. Oh, so it what? looks like somebody else did it. Oh, uh, do we know who? Ultimately, probably Turkey. Ooh. <laughs> oh, speaking of which. I have a foreign policy recommendation. Okay. Right what is it? All right. We have an air base in Turkey, in Sirlik. Yes. According to – no, I don't know. I'm not cleared for this. I only know what I read in the paper. According to that, we have 60 atomic bombs and uh, uh, fusion weapons, actually, mm-hmm. in, in Sirlik. Mm-hmm. And there's something called a dial bomb You can actually adjust the yield all the way down from a fraction of a kiloton up to 170. Okay. Fairly powerful weapons. Okay. Okay. And they're set to be carried by airplanes or something. They're, okay. We don't need them. I mean, we have other delivery mechanisms which are more secure in the sense you don't have to worry about the Turks suddenly seizing them. So we have we have airplanes from the United States. We have intercontinental ballistic missiles. We have submarine launch missiles. Yeah. We do not need them there. Right. There's only one interesting thing that can happen from those, which is something bad. If the Turks wanted to, they could seize them. Probably. They don't have codes on it? They, they, they're disactivated? Well, or... they, they, they do, and that means they could not use them that day. Mm-hmm. But they've got the plutonium in them. The plutonium is the hard part. Okay. If they took them, I mean, like, I don't know if you could just disable all the safeties and then make it go off, or if you have to take out plutonium and rebuild your own. But the second is certainly possible. Yes. It's not trivial, but it's easier to do that than it is, I mean, because you've already got the fissionable materials. That's what, generally, that's the hardest step, is to separate the isotopes or make the plutonium. Here, mm-hmm. you have it. Now, let's suppose they take it, then they hide it, like in the middle of Istanbul. What are we going to do? Nuke them? I don't right. think so. And it means that in a short order, all this – the other thing is, we suppose we said, well, the guys at Sandia, the sort of people who live in my neighborhood, or used to, they're mostly retired now in this mm-hmm. neighborhood, uh, that's what they do. They build all these safeties and stuff, mm-hmm. partly. They said, now, suppose they told the president, says, well, don't worry, they could never take it apart and disable them. I'm not sure I believe them. Now, would the president know that was true? How could he know? He doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't know anything about anything. No yeah. president does. Right. Not anymore. Uh, anyhow, the point is, 
Turkey's going down a strange path. I don't know what Erdogan is up to, but I can think of a number of paths in which having being a nuclear having a nuclear deterrent is sometimes useful. I mean, I'm sure Iraq. I'm sure Saddam wishes he wished he had a nuclear deterrent. Oh yeah, very much. Uh, but uh, I mean, I don't know how real this is, but I do know that uh, Sunday we sent the uh, the head of the Joint Chiefs to Inserlik to talk to them, and that the place is surrounded by seven thousand Turkish troops. So I was a little concerned. Anyhow, what's my recommendation? Get them out of there. Yeah. In fact, my real recommendation is, why didn't you get them out years ago? There's no purpose to them. I mean, I, I guess you'd claim a purpose is it deters a Russian invasion. Yeah, because they've been acting like the whole thing, you know, we, we just get up in the morning, we feel like we don't have enough Turks. <laughs> well, I'm sure they, they'd like Istanbul. Now I ask Greg if genetics could have played a role in why the classical Greeks were so smart. I can tell you we could probably find out by digging a few of them up in the near future. Okay. If, well, if we can find sufficiently well-preserved DNA. Mm -hmm. I, by the way, I've been asked this problem, and I think it's unfair. I said, look, with the Ashkenazi story, you know a lot about it. Mm -hmm. and, and you know there's certain prerequisites that you have to have happen. They're unusual, and the Ashkenazi have every single one of them. Like right. if you really want to change be different from your neighbors, you have to have very low rates of intermarriage. You can compute how low. Under 2% a generation, low. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is not to say the same that you can't mix in the first place. You just can't keep mixing after that. You have to let selection keep pushing you in whatever direction it wants to push without diluting it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we knew that was true of the Jews. Okay. You knew you have to have something different. Like the different thing is they're 90% white-collar jobs. Right. Not true of anyone else in the world. Okay. So we knew a lot. Okay. And we have IQ tests and stuff. Now, about the Ionian Greeks, we don't know any of those things. Yeah. We know that they certainly, I think they made a pretty good impression of being smart. Mm -hmm. The Greeks in general, particularly the Ionian Greeks, mm -hmm. do I know that they were reproductively isolated? I bet, particularly in the times leading up to the time they show up in the, you know, in the classical era. Yes. I don't know. There's no there's no written records. Uh, do uh, did they have an unusual mix of jobs? This is I don't think it was that unusual. They might have been more pirates than other people. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyhow, I've had people ask me, so what's the genetic explanation with the Ionian Greeks? And my answer has been forthrightly, I do not know. And it's unfair to ask me about things that happened in the Dark Age before the last Dark Age. However, I used to think you'd never know. But now I think if you dig up enough of them, you probably can tell. How long do you think it will be before we'll be able to do that? Well, if it depends upon DNA preservation and some of its luck. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, there's, place, there's places that are better and worse. Like you, ideally, you have a very cool, dry place, and some places, and cold, cold is good. I don't know if you're going to find that in Greece, but you might. I don't know. But if you don't find it, I don't think this. I, can, I don't know how to. I can't make it exist. Right. But uh, I think there's a fair chance you might. Also, the methods are getting better. They're getting better at dealing with kind of degraded samples and things. So maybe. Uh, but if you if you got uh, and other thing is you might need more than one or two you might need a number of such bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's but you know here's what I would look. There are mass graves that come from the plague of Athens. Yes. Think we must. Hmm. Hope we don't find and, the. And, hope we don't find the thing that killed them all. Well, not many things last 2,500 years. I mean, that's you have to be a worry wart. Okay. Uh, by the way, nobody quite knows. Uh, but uh, but you'd probably find that out too, just by 
you know, there's we have done that successfully in some cases where people said, what do these people really die of? And the answer is, oh, just what the book said. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the uh, we might be able to find out. But they certainly acted as if they were pretty smart. Do you think they had IQ above 100, you know, with today's measurement on average? Maybe. Of course, you know, some of these things are relative. But, yeah, they came up with some clever things. Uh, I mean, they didn't just invent proofs. They invented proof. Right, right. You know, that, that's worth something, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That's a meta invention. Uh, uh, I think they probably did, but I can't prove it. Uh, but I think you'll, we might be able to know pretty soon. Uh, of course, the same thing would you be able to – I mean, people are wondering if we're going to be able to know how smart Neanderthals are. That may or may not work because after a while, you know, too many of the variants are simply different ones. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we know the variant does X, that's what a in humans, but if they have a different variant we've never even seen, how do we tell? We have to clone lots and lots of Neanderthals and raise them up and then give them all IQ tests. And then, and by the way, since uh, some of these methods seem to take very large numbers, we probably have to raise hundreds of thousands of Neanderthals to fully <laughs> understand these. Oh, well, like for example, I've seen studies that had 300,000 on some of these GWS studies, mm-hmm. and they want more. So, for example, I was saying if you wanted to do a comparable study on Bushman, you can't because there aren't that many. Okay. Well, but why couldn't we clone like 50 Neanderthals and take their average IQ? That would I mean, we wouldn't get that the genetic be, basis of it. We but. wouldn't know how it worked, but we would know. Right. Fair enough. Uh, and uh, and they can always get a job in football or something uh, or throwing the well, throwing the uh, I mean, throwing the caber. There's under a hundred of them. I'm sure they'll easily be able to find employment. It's you know if there's millions and they turn out to be pretty. Not only that, they'll, there'll be all sorts of girls saying, you know, I've never done it with a Neanderthal before. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there will be actually. <laughs> I heard of two guys who were twin 700-pound uh, North Carolina hog farmers who got on the professional wrestling circuit, uh-huh. and that was their experience. They'd have they run into girls says, I've never done it with twigs with 700-pound twins before. Uh, uh-huh. There's a lesson here. Uh, well, don't don't be don't be normal. Uh, what if there was such a thing as hybrid vigor between two different Cuban different groups? So hy- we don't have much. So just hybrid no. vigor is when you like combine two different types of corn and you get the, the final corn is better than either of the previous ones. Often a lot better. Yes. Uh, is there anything could like that happen? As I said, well, I don't know of any. I don't really know of any evidence. I know of one thing that might be evidence, but it's pretty weak. And nobody's ever pushed it any further. They looked at Hawaii. They looked at people who were like half Japanese, half European, and they seemed to be about a third of a standard deviation higher in IQ. But we don't know if the sample was random. Right. They might have just been the smarter people doing this. You don't know. Could it happen? Sure. I mean, mules are smarter than either donkeys or horses. It's possible. Mm-hmm. They also have more endurance and are more stubborn than either of them. I mean, you know, like for the purposes of science fiction, I've thought of it. I said, and undoubtedly what happened would be, you know, one of the groups would be rare and you would have to suck up to some obnoxious dictator to get to get them to keep making more. You know, so, you know, because that's the way the world is, you know. Right. Uh, there's, you know, if there's oil, it's got to be in Saudi Arabia or something because, you know, <laughs> there's there's no justice. Uh, but uh, are there, I mean, you could clone people. That one, we should... It's probably possible. How I mean, far are we clone, from being able to do that, do you think? With living people, I'm not sure it's impossible now. Oh. I think it's technically harder with uh, with some primates, but you know, they do it with uh, they do it with dogs and they do it with cats and they do it with sheep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you probably could, but I think you probably have to develop specialized techniques because there's always some differences. Right. But 
I don't think it's deeply different. Uh, could you clone people? Maybe. Uh, could you clone the dead? I said, well, you have to perfectly recover the DNA or something. But maybe. By the way, we'll start out with something other than humans on that. Mm-hmm. You know, dinosaurs, something safe. Uh, <laughs> well, no, they're too old. Uh, uh, saber-toothed tigers. Uh, mammoths frozen in the... By the way, somebody's trying to do that with a frozen mammoth. I don't know if they're getting anywhere. Uh, I bet that one will know. happen just because it'll be a great attraction for zoos. You could sell the mammoths for so. a lot of money. Well, the same, you know, George Church, uh, he's a, a practical geneticist and he's interested in this. I think he's, but uh, he was talking about cloning Neanderthal. I wrote an article about it, which you can read if you if you okay. dig it out. It was uh, on Tacky's magazine. Uh, and uh, I had a bit of, or I, think I, I think the way it started was uh, someday we may be able to see in the near future, we'll be able to see Neanderthals without drinking a quart of old overcoat first. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, uh, maybe. Uh, uh, and, you know, but, you know, the things that are possible, I mean, like suppose you could clone people, you know, that would, and cloning people who are, like, really good for something and not just football. Right. Uh, it might be useful. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of strange implications, like, if you think genetics, there have been people who were using a genetic policy kind of explicitly, and it worked, but nobody thinks of it that way. You know, the Turks for a long time had something called the law of fratricide. Mm-hmm. The sultan would have you know, a million children, and when he died, uh, whoever got to the capital first would claim, you know, within reason, I think you probably had to at least be able to you know, read or something, uh, could, would claim to be, and then he'd execute all his brothers, have them strangled. Now it's not a perfectly fair contest, uh, because particularly for the three-year-olds. Yeah, I mean it was a vicious, vicious system, but they used it for quite a while. And what it meant was that you never got an idiot. Can you imagine what it would be like to have to for a extended period of time for a government, particularly a centralized government, in which the guy at the top was always competent? Yeah, especially it's not true of any other form of government. Mm-hmm. Now, actually. They went about 10 generations. The previous three, they didn't have this. The first three, they were just having civil wars, which can have the same effect, but they're kind of expensive. Right. And then for about seven generations, they used the law of fratricide, and every single guy was competent. And I, and I think it, I think that their system actually sucked the big wazoo. I think it was really stupid compared to European systems. But it, in this one way, it was reliably better. You know, totally confused puppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing is you get regression to the mean. Suppose the founder of the dynasty is tough and competent. On mm-hmm. average, some of that was not terrible. Some of it is. Some of it's not. Right. The other thing is, does he marry – like did Genghis Khan marry the female equivalent of Genghis Khan there? God, would you marry the female <laughs> equivalent of Genghis Khan? No, he didn't. Uh, right. I mean actually his main wife was actually – probably a Mongol and tougher than average, but not like him. Nobody's like him. So the kids, are are they like him? But nobody's like him. You you mentioned, I think, in your blog that we're probably going to end up cloning Genghis Khan, that someone will discover oh, sure. his tomb, and there's so many, he has so many descendants, and Mongolians still think so highly of him. We'll be able to identify him, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then then the Chinese will clone him, they're saying, because, you know, I mean, he'll be the perfect soldier. I said, oh, you got it wrong. You're the perfect soldier. He's the perfect general. Yeah. Uh, you know, so this it would it would be an unsound thing to do. Oh, yes. Although uh, I actually have a long-winded uh, uh, theory of how we deal with this. The idea is we have to clone Alexander. <laughs> well, we have to find his body. 
Well, according to the, I see, I have, I have a theory. The theory goes like this. You see, according to the books, uh, they put him in this special casket, uh, and he was, you know, immersed in honey. He was made out of crystal. He was immersed in honey. For a while, it was in Babylon. And then they claim that they moved it to Egypt, and then after a long time, it finally got lost. But my theory is that actually it was left at Babylon. Uh-huh. And all that, and see, this gives us a reason for invading Iraq. <laughs> to fight Alexander's body. Well, see, the after Dolly, the Chinese had already started, they had already found uh, Genghis, and after Dolly, they knew what to do. <laughs> well, you think the Chinese would be the last people who'd want to raise Genghis Khan? I mean, that would be like people Israel cloning Hitler. People make mistakes. People make mistakes. Yes, yes but, you're right. But it's, it's ultimately a mistake, but, you know, let's... There must be some great Chinese general they would want to clone first. I don't know. Genghis was the best. Yeah, but he killed a lot of Chinese people. Less than half. <laughs> oh, well. A, a little less than half. Uh, Didn't he come close uh, to contemplating besides, genocide? Besides, as a historical <laughs> president, you had the Kid Empire, which was a bunch of guys, uh, the Liang or something. That, uh-huh. They had conquered northern China, but they were pretty sinicized. They were running a similar system. Uh uh, but the native dynasty was the Sung in South China. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the kid, were, they were kind of tough. They weren't that many generations off the step themselves. Some of them were pretty good mounted bowmen and stuff. But they were having a lot of trouble with the Mongols. And so the Sung Empire said, well, it's time for us to do the right thing. Could you guess what they did? Uh, they made an alliance with Genghis? Of course. See, they they can't help it. They'd be bound to do it because it's stupid in the in the normal human way. Uh, they would be anyhow. The, the other thing is, so all this stuff, the cover, we were quote looking everywhere for the weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> it was to find Alexander. Spent a billion dollars looking all over the place. Yeah. It all. It. I mean, so you know the real, the the real things that happen is you have, uh, you know, you have the guys like Rumsfeld and Busher sitting around talking about, you know. The, the lost works that Arian based his history on, and they're talking about, you know, like, why do we put all this money into genetics, into the hat map and everything? None of it's been <laughs> useful for anything. It's not medically useful. It's for <laughs> bring back Alexander. Don't well, you like the idea that there's I, a that something has a purpose and that not everybody at the top is a complete pinhead? Yes, that that makes for much more interesting history. Although we do know well, where we know where Napoleon's body is. He might be better than an Alexander. He's not of the same class. Although, really? by the way, I've just been I've been as it turns out, independent of this theory of mine, I, or maybe as a consequence of it, I've been reading a decent biography of Alexander by Peter Green, uh-huh. and Alexander was a complete he was a nasty, nasty man. I don't like him. At, I never liked him before, and now I I like him a lot less. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, we don't know, yeah. we don't know Alexander though could run a modern country or could command you know a million troops. We know Napoleon could. Napoleon can scale up. Uh, Alexander, Alexander had more raw talent. There's no question about it. Okay, I don't know I mean, about he, that. He, he could pull victories out of his ass. I mean, he's he's almost he's probably up in the same class with Hannibal or something. Uh, maybe better, probably better. He was good. But his opponents but he, weren't as good as Napoleon's opponents, right? Uh, Napoleon was better, but you know he wasn't that much better. He had a better instrument. You know, they with these levees on Moss, they had a big. Most of the time, he had a bigger army, mostly of one country. Mm-hmm. You know, where the other ones were like coalition warfare has its problems. Let me give you an example. There was a time in which the Russians and the Austrians were a lot working together against Napoleon, mm-hmm. and they were supposed to meet at a certain date, at a certain place. 
The yeah. Russians were 11 days late. Can you guess why? What, something with the czar not feeling like... Old style. Day? Old style calendar. They had, uh, no, they had forgotten. They had forgotten to synchronize calendars. Oh, before God. <laughs> I mean, they didn't change their... They didn't change the Gregorian cal- uh, calendar until the Russian Revolution. Uh, uh, so they were, they were more off than anybody could even dream. Uh, <laughs> almost two weeks. At any rate, yeah... Uh, but Napoleon didn't have that kind of problem. You know, it's you see, it's not just what you, it's not just you. It's the, your instrument. When France is your instrument, mm-hmm. France was the most powerful country in Europe, mm-hmm. and in, and close to the most advanced, although not in everything. Uh, but anyhow, so the, I mean, why did we put money into this? Well, it's obvious because we were preparing to, and we and we're in a desperate hurry. See, the Chinese had an advantage because a lot of Mongolia <laughs> is permafrost. Oh, uh, so. So you've got to have better DNA preservation in, in Genghis than you would in uh, – I mean, I don't think that honey thing is all that good. At any rate, so you need uh, – I mean, presumably the Europeans are in on this, you know, which makes – so so. but the point is this. Then there's a reason for everything. This is why we had to go into Iraq. This is why we had to look desperately all over the place. Then after a while, after we found it, we didn't really give a crap anywhere, and then we left. I mean, and we, and we all have to come up with – Total bullshit explanations because we can't tell the truth because that you know makes the Chinese will just work harder. Of course. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I believe this all started out. I had a guy who was uh, uh, in my version of this. We have this kid who's a street kid in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. His his father had been, you know, in the British Army, but somehow he just ended up left behind somewhere after his father died, mm-hmm. and he's sort of raised up by the people on the streets. And then he gets a job with an expedition that's going up into Mongolia, supposedly looking for dinosaur fossils, but you know what it's really after. Yes. And then when he, he gets there, and they find Genghis's tomb. And then the leaders of the expedition start cutting the throats of everybody else in the expedition in the middle of the night. He just barely escapes. <laughs> he has to hitchhike his way all the way across China <coughs> while a wanted man. Mm-hmm. But he finds uh, some trucker who's... Uh, you know, uh, working on oil in the Talamak, Talamak land desert, it, you know, it gives him a ride. He finally ends up in uh, in this little bit of Afghanistan that sticks almost into Ch- that actually touches the Chinese border, mm-hmm. which is called uh, uh, oh, what's the today they they used to call it. Uh, it was the last place that Islam came to. They were pagans until about 1910 mm-hmm. or 1890 or something like that. And, they're, and some of them are blonde, and they, they speak this weird ancient Indo-European language, uh, Dardic. Uh, 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 what's the name of that place? Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, since our hero, have, there's only one thing he has from his father, which is his Masonic medal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's you know, escaping the Chinese border guards, and he just barely gets into this little isolated valley. Uh, and they recognize it, of course. And then they take good care of him because they think – you know what they think. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and he's taken care of by this pretty blonde girl. They have blonde girls. In the, what is the name of this valley? I should remember this. Today it's called – uh, they renamed it. It used to be called something that meant pagans, and now the the province is named after uh, light. Uh, Nuristan. Mm-hmm. Nuristan. It used to be Kafiristan. So he's in Kafiristan. And uh, and the, the girl nurses him, and after a while, uh, uh, they get busy. Uh, and she becomes devoted to him. He says, I have to tell somebody. He knows he heard too much. He knows what the what that expedition is up to. He knows they're going to try to, they found Genghis and they're going to clone him. 
I mean, by the way, the story was it had layers instead of layers. The first layer was that they're looking for dinosaurs. The second layer is, oh no, we're looking for Genghis Khan's too, just because right. it's got more sellable shit than anything else in the world. Yeah. But that's but even that's not the real reason. The real reason is Genghis himself, his cool. genes. Although I imagine, I mean, wouldn't his generals be even more valuable to a military? Because we know they can follow word. I mean, you know, having two Genghises might not work out very well, but having, like, lots of what Subides might, might be, be really Subutai useful. Was, Subutai was good. Uh, he would be worth looking for. In fact, maybe he'll resurrect the whole team. Yeah. But I don't know. He might be harder to find. I don't know where he's buried, although perhaps somebody does. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyhow, after a while, he, he gets out. You know, he ends up contact. This is like in 99. He can he ends up contacting, or by, by now, 2000. He ends up contacting the Americans when we invade Afghanistan. And he's able – and at first they think he's crazy, but then they check out a few things and said, my God, he's right. They're cloning Genghis. And they said, this shall not stand. So said, well, we're going to have to invade Iraq. But he said, but that's just going to look stupid. They didn't have anything to do with 9-11. They said, yes, but it's 9-11 is our excuse and it has to be done. So, you know, I've explained the last 20 years or so. Yeah. It makes... And it makes so much more sense than what you've heard, doesn't it? Well, I unfortunately I did – I remember I was debating in favor of the invasion at Smith College, so I was fooled. I thought they really did have weapons of mass destruction, or at least there was a high probability of it. So no, it, it, it if was you enough, looked at, at the, the time technical was, numbers, it was impossible. I mean, literally impossible. I, I believe I mean, I They're broke, they're poor, they're dumb. And the other thing is, if you know something about what we can detect, mm -hmm. we haven't detected anything. I mean, if you have a plutonium plant, you know, a breeder, it releases certain things like uh, certain isotopes of krypton. You don't normally find radioactive isotopes. You can detect them. If you detect them, you can even tell something about the way in which they're running as well as the fact that there is such a plant. We've detected – you can detect such things from tests. You can detect them from a plant. You, 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 know, you need to know the, the, the technical details, which evidently nobody in Washington – I mean literally no one in Washington does. The CIA uh, must have had a huge number of experts on atomic weapons though. You'd think, wouldn't you? But yeah. I know people who are experts. For example, one of my friends that I went to grad school with and still keep close to is the, one of the top three guys in X Division at Los Alamos, and he's responsible, sort of the shepherd, for about a third of the arsenal. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I do know. I mean, I know at least some, and I know some people to ask. Of course, they can't usually tell it. I have all these conversations. He said, yeah, that's an interesting question, you know, because yeah, everything's secret. But the it was like this. There's only four ways to do it. They're all hard. They're all expensive. None of them are feasible for the Iraqis. I mean, you have gaseous diffusion to separate isotopes. That takes something about the size of three, four football fields. Mm -hmm. You have you have centrifuges, hard to make work, although it can be done. But you know, if you want to ask a bunch of Iraqis to do it, you probably wait till the end of time. Look, it's hard. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and even it's the other thing is there's leaks. I mean, plus Iraq is particularly bad because there aren't many Iraqis who the government could even trust. They can't trust the Kurds who are effectively in a separate country. The Shiites had just revolted. Right. And, you know, half half the Sunnis can't read. Uh, and it doesn't mean that the ones who can read are all theoretical physicists. Uh, the, there just was no way to do it. I mean, also no money, which is important. Mm -hmm. uh, and they never had any evidence they were doing any of this stuff. Every, everything was just made up or talking to somebody crazy. We now start talking about the effectiveness of torture. Work, uh, because like you, you see lots of people would say, well, you, you know, torture doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It does though. 
that's one thing I, I could never get that I mean I've like when I've been in like small amounts of pain I thought you know if someone were inflicting this on me and they'd say I'll stop if you tell me this I probably would tell them that uh, by the way they wouldn't really stop usually but anyway <laughs> uh, but in World War II torture was frequently used more by probably the uh, Germans and Japanese and Russians than us we weren't famous for it but we did it sometimes and sometimes it worked I mean, for example, when we had the battle midway, we had some pilots. Also, I don't know if you count this as torture. Simply holding up a, a sword to your throat and saying, tell me or I will kill you. That's not exactly torture, but it's still kind of in the ballpark. Yes. Okay. We had some guys who were in the carrier strikes against the Japanese carriers of battle midway. Mm-hmm. And their planes had been knocked down and they, the Japanese fished them out of the water. They wanted to know where the rest the American carriers were because they did not know. And with a samurai sword to their throat, they told. And then they cut the guy's head off and threw him into the water. They kill a couple of Americans that way. Uh, there's plenty of examples where it works. The thing is, what you'd want to do is you want to try, use it in a way that you're trying to find out information rather than confirming your hopes or dreams. Right. So, for example, uh, like a famous example, there was a guy who uh, was in the French Resistance and the Gestapo called Jean Moulin. I'm probably mispronouncing it. M-O-U-L-I-N. Anyhow, and he never broke under torture. And the Germans, even they were impressed by him and so forth. says, oh, well, how did they catch him? Oh, that was because the other guy did break under torture and, and, and told about everybody he knew in that, uh, in, around Marseille involved in, the, in that underground group. Mm-hmm. And then some of the rest of them did, but not this one. <laughs> so when they say that, said, well, you, you just get whatever you want to hear. I said, what if you want to hear the truth? See, if it's the truth, it's usually checkable. See, this is – you familiar with NP, you know, uh, complete problems and so forth? Yes, yes. Okay, those are ones that it's hard to find the answer, but it's easy to check it. Right, right. There's an awful lot of things in this world where if people said, you probably never thought of that, but do you ever wonder if there's a whole lot of, you know, German blah piling up in this one French port? You know, you can check easy. Just fly over and take a picture. Mm-hmm. There, there's lots of things like that in espionage. You, you can't check every possibility, but you can check any possibility fairly easily, yeah. or at least many of them. So uh, if you were interested in finding out things, you can often find out things by torture because you'd say, well, we have ways of checking to see if what you said was true. I mean, also, just by also, in many cases, even if it's at least plausible and possible, but in many cases, you can check it. Now, if you said, we want to hear about how Roosevelt's actually Jewish, he said, well, but he's not. Well, but we want to hear it anyhow. We're going to beat you. They say it. Okay. But if they'd done that, they would have been wasting their time. They would have been like the Bush administration. <laughs> the Nazis were not like that, not much. And neither were the Japanese. Now, the Russians would do that, but only to other Russians. You know, would a purge trial or something. But, you know, if they capture uh, a German soldier, they want to beat out information. They don't want to hear about, you know, how bad fascism is. They want to know, you know, how many tanks do you have behind that hill? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what they used it for. So torture works fine. I mean, not always. I mean, some people don't know things. Some people will tell you stuff. Some of it's hard to check. But, you know, it can work. Mm-hmm. So what about all the people who say who it doesn't work? They're lying. Yeah, but they're not. That, they weren't lying about the Bush administration because mm-hmm. they used it in ways they mostly wanted to hear their fantasies confirmed. Oh, so that's why it didn't, it didn't work for them. Nothing would work for Dick Cheney. <laughs> we now start to talk about polygamy and fidelity in marriage. I can't prove it, but there is a lot of evidence that actually being married and having children drops your testosterone level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suspect people actually have built-in adaptations to 
getting hitched and staying around and taking care of the kids. I mean, and this probably works a lot better with somebody of the opposite sex than somebody who's not. Is that you think that's a recent adaptation over the last since we've recent means farming? the last couple hundred thousand years maybe. I mean, most populations on Earth are fairly monogamous. Mm-hmm. People talk all the time about how they're not, but they're not. It's not true. Well, were hunter-gatherer cultures are they monogamous? Only only the ones we know about. Uh, like I could tell you about Bushmen. Henry told me a lot about them, and I've read some things. Typically, uh, he, some of it was funny. He said, well, they would arrange marriages, but those would often fall apart. People would actually sort of pick their own, and and they would usually stick together. Once in a great while, if somebody was a fantastic hunter, or if like his wife's sister was widowed and needed somebody to take care of him, and he was a good, unusually good hunter, he'd pick her up too. And it wasn't necessarily – doesn't necessarily sound like something he was enthusiastic about. Right. Okay. Pygmies. Kind of similar. No polygamy that I know of. Uh, Eskimos. No polygamy that I know of. Now, there's a very weird thing among the uh, Australian Aborigines, which was, you know, you start out, like when you're young, they give you an old lady. As you get older, you get younger and younger ones. And by the time you're like 70, you get you can have several 16-year-olds because there aren't many 70-year-olds and there's a lot of 16-year-olds. That was a weird system. Yeah, that is. I, I, I've never heard of it anywhere else. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, the actual – we only know so many actual hunter-gatherers. I think most of them are reasonably monogamous. For one thing, you know, you need some. You need to have command a lot of resources somehow. How would you feed a bunch of wives? I mean either you're in a situation where they feed themselves or you somehow have power and influence so that you can divert resources to them. Uh I think there's evidence that happened a lot more once agriculture started happening, but even then, some populations it's just not. Well, it could be that you just everyone has one mate at a time, but you keep switching mates all the time. Well, that was Helen Fisher's idea. Well, but that isn't actually what happened. Uh-huh. I mean, it, I'm not saying it's unknown, mm-hmm. but no, I know of no place where that happened, okay. except that Australian thing, which is again truly, truly screwy. Yeah. Uh, but no, I've never. I mean, people split once in a while. Uh, they get mad at each other, you know. But mm-hmm. as far as I know, you know, pretty monogamous, uh, closer to mating for life than any other pattern, mostly, not entirely. Uh, now, people all the time says, well, what about, you know, weren't hunter-gatherers really, you know, polymorphously perverse? I said, no. Well, but should they have been? I said, should? That's your word. I don't know. But they weren't. Or, or you know, today we'll have all sorts of people saying, well, you know, lots of women, they're really, God, I, all right, these are, these are. What's the abbreviation? MRA? Uh, yeah, for... well, there it says, you know, how women are really getting pregnant by alpha guys and then they marry some beta guy. Yeah, oh. I knew a case like that. But it's not typical because I've looked at, you know, we can now do genetics. We can tell what fraction of kids are really somebody else's. Very few. Mm-hmm. Very, very few. Less than 2%. I've read that in your blog. That does seem surprising, from an, not from an experience viewpoint, but from an evolutionary viewpoint. I mean, uh, why well, part of it is, you know, there can be a downside, like when, you know, your husband catches you and beats you to death. Yeah. Or when, or if you are the guy sneaking in and where the husband catches you and beats you to death. I mean, and maybe only half the time does that happen. Maybe half the time you beat him, but that's kind of a high risk type of situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people weren't real calm about it for most of history. And again, probably for evolutionary reasons. Right. Uh, but, uh, well, one thing is like when you have people say, well, I don't believe in any of that stuff, so I, I feel free to construct a lifestyle in which we are uh, – and also we all 
talk to Eliezer Yukatsky, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably the worst part. Uh, you know, so I had you know people on uh, what was it? Less wrong. There, mm-hmm. I guess most of them were in some sort of complicated multi-person. I said, well, I can certainly hope that most of you uh, manage to avoid anything really dangerous and infectious, but none of this is going to work. People aren't like that. You aren't like that. Yeah, well, I think a lot of the people in like the less wrong community around Silicon Valley, they do have these weird relationships. They also tend not to have children, which probably makes it a lot easier. Yeah, that's kind of part of it. That and some of them have... You know, think they're they've changed their sex, and uh, you know none of this really makes very much sense to me. I don't think it works. Oh, hey, I have a Smith-related story to tell. Okay. You like this? This was uh, years ago, some years ago. There was a woman who was uh, teaching. She was a professor at Smith, mm-hmm. and she had this uh, girl who was had joined some lesbian commune, which I believe are you know mm-hmm. reasonably nearby, close some of them, and 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 she was. She wanted to talk to this teacher. She needed somebody to talk to. They wanted her to get rid of her puppy because it was a boy puppy. Oh, God. And uh, and previously she said, well, it's not really my place to talk about these or tell, you know, so I don't really know. I'm not sure I want to tell you how to live and so forth. She says, should I, should I get rid of my puppy or should I maybe quit? And she said, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. Yeah. Uh, but oh, – uh, uh, I imagine those are the people who joined that commune who never take one of my classes, so I haven't run into anyone like that at Smith. Oh, but. I mean, you know, why, is there some reason lesbians aren't interested in economics? Like, no, no, but my, I'm known as being politically incorrect, and if you hate men oh. that much. and you're Do you just... still manage to fill your classes? Yeah, I, well, I think it works even if, like, you know, 50%, I make 50% of the students less likely to take my classes, as long as they make well, some more likely. big enough that you can, st- yeah, you, you, it could work. Yeah. Uh, maybe they like you. Maybe. Uh, I teach my game theory class is actually one of the most popular at Smith College, so I'm very proud of that. Uh, anyhow, sorry about the MRA thing. Nobody, nobody I can find does this. But there are places nobody has looked, so it's possible there are some groups of people where there's a lot of infidelity that results in babies, but not uh, either now, in, not now in essentially any group that's ever been measured. Okay. We haven't measured every group. Uh, the uh, I did find a study, but I don't know whether to believe it because they ask these chicks whether somebody else was the father. Oh. And this was uh, in the, a group, sort of a Bantu-type group, and some huge fraction of them said, oh, no, of course it wasn't him. I don't even like him. Right. Uh, but, but, but I don't know if it was true or anything I mean, because, you know, it was done. They just asked. They didn't actually do any genetic measuring. Uh, Herrero, another group that Henry had once worked with, and he had wondered if they might not have a high infidelity rate. And I wonder now, too, but I don't know. Uh, but, you know, with Germans and Irish and Icelanders and Americans and uh, Boers and everybody we've looked at, it's not only low, it's been low for hundreds of years, mm. at least minimum. And we know that from genetic analysis, so we're not relying yeah, like, on anyone like, Look, the, the famous example was there was a guy named Sykes mm-hmm. who was a geneticist, and he's mostly a flake, but this one thing he did was right. He said, that's a rare name. It maybe it started in one place. Would other people named Sykes have the same Y chromosome as me? Mm-hmm. And he looked at about half of them did. And since this was over about 700 years, this boiled down to like uh, infidelity rate of like one and a half percent or something a generation. Oh. And by the way, some of those uh, could have been some sort of adoption. We now move to talk about early childhood education programs. I mean, we know it won't because we know all sorts of things that family background doesn't do it. And I bet you actually being raised by somebody is 
almost as important as which kindergarten you go to. <laughs> and it doesn't do anything. There, there are econ studies saying kindergarten, the quality of the kindergarten teacher matters a huge amount. I haven't gone through these studies. I don't know how good they are. It's all horseshit. None of this stuff makes any difference. You can't even – most people can't even remember what happened in kindergarten. I mean, yeah. I mean it's – I mean, look, the, the twin studies, it doesn't matter. It's – your genes take – and the other thing is genes don't ever get – lie down on the job and, and forget to keep pushing you in a given direction. Mm -hmm. They push every day of your life. Like it's supposed he said, I'm going to be – uh, in the ballet, even though my genes want me to be an economist, you'd be thinking economic thoughts even if you were doing, you know, uh, uh, something by Tchaikovsky. Mm -hmm. Although I, you would be getting laid a lot, though. Uh, 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 but you know, it's just there's no chance. There's no chance it's going to be. And I've seen things with fairly reasonable, you know, not perfect because you can't really do. You never get the control experiment be perfect, mm -hmm. but. Uh, you know, they looked at you know a place where a bunch of people applied, and you know of those that that qualified, some were let in, but they didn't have enough for everybody. They did it randomly. What was the difference at the end for the pre-K? I think this was Kentucky or Tennessee. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any. Actually, there was a teeny tiny difference. The pre-K was a little worse, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really mean anything. What really happened is nothing. Yeah. And, and I was listening. He had some of his people giving talks, and the people he had working for them were dumb. By the way, a lot of these other people weren't. Uh, even some of the ones who might have agreed with him, but his and they were talking about epigenetics. I wanted to strangle all of them, uh, but uh, I keep running into this. You know, it's it's the things that are strikingly wrong that stick out. I probably am ignoring a lot of reasonable things. I'm sure, like those Nick's Keon. I may be mispronouncing Q I A N. Uh, Not sure. What do you mean? They, they they these people who are both at Yale were uh, uh, two women who were uh, concluding that lots of uh, Black guys decided to stop being black and just show up as white on the census. After a, they were doing some complicated thing, trying to match names on the census, they concluded that 17% of each generation, for like three or four generations after the Civil War, black guys were just turning white. I said, where did they go? See, because we've done recent genetic studies, and we know, like we can take a guy, and I can tell you to a tenth of a percent how much of his ancestry is African compared to European, probably because they're fairly different. Mm -hmm. It's harder for comparing, say, French and and German or something, possible to some extent, but you know, easy with right. some build differences. And they know, and this is like the average white guy in the United States. You know, how black are they? Two tenths of a percent. Where did all this go? Yeah. I said, where? It's got to be somewhere, right? Did they just vanish into into the clouds? I said, I said. And the other thing is, like, have you ever read a book set in the United States, in you know, by Mark Twain or anybody, or in the South or Faulkner, like? Wouldn't somebody have heard of this? All these people mysteriously changing races? I mean, we're talking about now and then. We're talking about a lot. I mean, before that, I mean, there must have been somebody you couldn't have told the difference just by looking. Wouldn't the people walking around the South before the Civil War? That's funny because a lot of the slaves look look perfectly white. Yeah. You know, but I've read people who visited the South. I've read diaries of people in the South. I've read, I've had relatives invade the South. I and. And I said, why wouldn't you do that? Why don't you try to understand your subject before you just start warping away at it? Or what was it, Emily Oster? Mm -hmm. Remember the thing about, oh, yeah, there's fewer uh, boys, girls being born in China because of hepatitis B? Uh, yes, sir. Remember that one? Yeah, and there was a mistake. Someone did that and admitted a mistake afterwards. you know how long it took me to notice it was a mistake? 
How did what, it, what gave it away? Eight seconds, ten seconds. Well, one thing I knew there were mobile ultrasound vans running around the backwoods of China oh. at that very moment. Okay. And they were getting rid of the girls, and they've been getting rid of girls for thousands of years. I knew cases within, you know, within the last ten or fifteen years where they said, "Oh, finally we had a boy." They take the four-year-old and they drop her down a well, and she's complaining to daddy, "Why did you do that?" <laughs> Plus, I also was able to quickly look up the statistics on hepatitis B. A, something that killed more of one sex than the other. I said it's not inconceivable, but I don't know of an example. There's certainly no evidence that's ever been the case with this or any other. No, no disease does that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could, but I don't know of any. I said, next, hepatitis B has been going down every year in the past 40. But the trend you're talking about of a bigger and bigger male surplus has been going up and up and up and up and up, even though there's getting, you know, hepatitis B was a lot more common in 1960 than it was in 1990. The Chinese were going to handle on it. Yeah. I said, there's a whole lot of facts. Every single fact disagrees with what you're saying. All of them. So, I mean, plus history, plus reading the good earth, plus reading about – I can read about Fu Manchu and I know more about China than I do. And what of you is Chinese? No, actually, excuse me. I'm mixing that up with a Nick's Keon paper. Oster was not Chinese. Might have helped. Uh, but – and then people – and then she got a job. Why does that happen? Yeah, she probably showed that she was very good at math or data analysis. Uh, I mean the, the techniques of I just – just for fun, I just – Fixed. I just went through and did the first seven of the Google programming challenge. Uh-huh. What does this good at math really mean? It means you can well. It means you can write papers based on models or uh, survive first year grad school is a big one. But then you can make complicated mathematical models. Are they right? Uh, usually not. <laughs> but, well, but we're trying, right? We don't have a good. I mean, if you know if they were right, then we'd stop once you had the right one. So you can refine them and you keep trying, keep applying them to new circumstances. Oh, or in things like game theory, where you, they're right given the assumptions. No one thinks the assumptions always hold. It's a question of how close are the assumptions. I've seen things in economics that made sense to me. My problem is I see an awful lot of things that sort of transparently don't. And one of the categories that I would think you could fix is uh, when, when you're trying to apply it to something that's sort of outside your field mm-hmm. and where uh, I would say local knowledge is worth getting. It doesn't mean you can't ever come up and say something useful, but it wouldn't hurt to at least know what the people already doing it have done and are thinking. Uh, I saw something Roland Fryer said. Now, this wasn't original with him. He had picked it up and liked it. But mm-hmm. The idea was like we start out with a fact. The fact is that there's greater problems with cardiovascular health and strokes in blacks than there are in whites in the country. Okay. Now, this idea somebody had years ago was that, uh, uh, well, you know, there must have been selection on the on the uh, slave ships, and only the people who were best at holding on to salt didn't die of diarrheal disease or something like that. Right. And I said, uh, and I looked at him, and I said, there's no way that could be right. I said, why? Well, casualties weren't that high. At the worst, the worst was in the early phases when the, the, basically because it took longer, the people got better at it, better ships, about 15% were lost. Mm-hmm. Whereas in uh, regular passenger ships from Europe to America, 10% were lost. But with all this hints that it's kind of bad to be a sailor and be on these ships repeatedly, at any rate, yeah. I said, 
But then if you look, I said, did they all die of diarrheal things? I said, some of them, but there were other things, smallpox, other things. You know, sometimes, you know, you'd get sick because the ship got becalmed. You could even get scurvy. I mean, anyhow, not infinitely so. I said, I said, is there any reason to think? The other thing is, like, if you're doing selection, suppose you chop off the bottom 15%, you don't change things very much. I said, what if it, we do it exactly in a way that we've cut off, we're selecting for height, we cut off the shortest people. How much difference do you expect? Well, I don't know. I think maybe a tenth of a standard deviation change. You probably never notice it. The way you get changed is if it builds up over time, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So I wrote in my note, I said, you know, if you just look at quantitative inheritance, there's no way this can be true. Now, if you look a little further, and if you notice we found some of the variants that make you hold on to salt, and notice that they were already high in Africa before anybody left. Now, Greg talks about the relationship between high Jewish academic achievement and some diseases that primarily strike Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, he suggested that you know there's simple things you could do if you wanted to see, in the, in, and this was a little earlier, mm-hmm. but you could look to see does being carrier for Tay-Sachs have any pluses? It says, and compare it to like siblings who don't have it. So the environment's pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And he was suggesting like, why don't we do it at Harvard? We have a lot of Jewish guys going to Harvard. And uh, Pinker said, well, if you if you want to get me in trouble and become an unemployable pariah, <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> but it shouldn't make you an unemployable pariah. It does, though. I mean, it's very hard to do. Uh, probably nobody's more sensitive. Probably Jewish genetics is as sensitive as anybody. Should be a way of marketing of saying our goal is to you know help people get smart, other people get smarter. And, or couldn't Why you would do, people want other people to get smarter? Couldn't Think you do to disprove it? Couldn't you find some you know these evil anti-Semites on these blogs are claiming this? So we're going to do the definitive study to prove they're wrong. And then well, that was actually one the of the things way. I was talking about. Is <laughs> we'll sell it backwards by yeah. Uh, they don't seem to want to do that. For example, there was a guy. There's a guy who's an evolutionary biologist of medium note in Israel. And after Henry and I put our paper out, you know, our papers just say, look, you you have all the right conditions. You have unusual jobs. People with more, were more successful had more kids. You have reproductive isolation, pretty pretty complete. Although those are all the things you need, and most they're rare, mm-hmm. even rare to have all of them at once. So, at any rate, uh, this guy said, this is neat. Hey. We can we can we can we can get all sorts of information. We can you know at the draft we can get blood samples. We we can have cognitive tests. We can just look at the draftees and we'll know. Yeah. He said, well we'll nail this sucker. We'll see if you're right if you're wrong. He says, and he wanted to have a big team. He th- you know he clearly thought there was a reasonable chance it was right, or he would have just said, well just do it and show you're wrong. Mm-hmm. He thought there was a reasonable chance we were right. And, and he, he talked to people about doing it. And they all said, why do you want to do that? They didn't want, nobody wanted to do it, and the reason was it would point out differences between Jewish groups in Israel. Oh. See, there's other groups that aren't Ashkenazi, probably a you know, majority of the population at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, anyhow, uh, there is no group in this country that is more optimistic about environmental interventions working, even the same one, even if the same one has been tried and failed 47 times in a row, than Ashkenazi Jews. It, it makes, I mean, Ashkenazi Jews seem really good. I mean, they, they certainly know you know, we know that we're very academically successful. And if it's like, well, it's our parenting techniques, it's our culture, that's a much better than it's these genes that sometimes cause diseases. So it's... Well, I, I, it's not just those. I think those are actually a small part of the story. Most of it's just differences in, you know, these things which are, have plus and minus effects, which are in every population, but somewhat different frequencies. Mm-hmm. You know, most of it is that. Only some of it. 
I mean, like when you select for anything, you get lots of genes. Like if you select it for height, you would get a lot of genes with a little bit of effect changing slightly in frequency. And if you strike, if you select it real strongly, you might have one or two genes that make a bigger effect. Mm-hmm. I think it's something like that. I don't think they're the primary cause. Uh, but I think that probably some of them have something to do with it because they look so much like it. And because, I mean, for example, if you're a car- uh, Tay-Sachs, it causes extra dendrites to grow before it kills you. Uh-huh. Uh, Gaucher disease, which is also in the same metabolic pathway, it affects something called sphingolipid. It causes the axons to grow, get be longer and branchier. Then there's Nemon Pick. Maybe there's like four Ashkenazi diseases that cause extra growth of dendrites or axons. And there aren't any others known out of thousands of human genetic diseases. Mm, yeah, that's quite a coincidence. At least the last time I checked. Yeah. There were no others known that had these dendrite and synapse growing effects. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, it makes you wonder. <laughs> that, and we start looking at, so what fraction of the world chess champions are Jewish? I said, uh, more than you'd think. <laughs> or Nobel Prize winners. I said, or what about people come up with really complicated lines of bullshit? I said, well, yeah, they're doing pretty well in that, too. Uh, you know, I think Marx must be counted. And Freud, yeah. although Freud didn't get nearly as many people killed. Uh, yeah. The other is for some of these, uh, like uh, there's one, kind of rarish, but uh, it causes this thing called torsion dystonia. Mm-hmm. It varies. Sometimes uh, you get like a writer's cramp. Sometimes you get terrible, terrible cramps that sort of put your muscles in permanent knots so you can't even sit straight. You know, it's cri- crippling. But with about these people, they say, but of course they're smarter than average. And the neurologist will tell you that. And only Ashkenazi Jews have it. But uh, they said, oh, yeah, it makes you smart. Of course, it also cripples you. I mean, I found a long, sad story about this this woman. She had a kid. He was such a smart kid. You know, he had a vocabulary of 100 when he was a year old. And then when he was about six or seven, he said, Mom, my foot won't go down. Uh, you know, his, and it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, they have, and they don't think, I don't know if it's gotten any better. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just... You know, one reason I, I would make a bad medical geneticist is I'd probably throw up if I had to deal. I'd, I'd feel bad I, when I couldn't help uh, kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly you can't. Uh, but at uh, any rate, uh, that's one of the ones where there's fair evidence that it makes you smarter. But because I ran into that when I was reading through something in neurology, I said, so there's a, there's a disease that makes you smarter and nobody talks about it? That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, but uh, it would you're probably going to take a mistake to let people get a different, decent study of this. I mean, somebody will get a bunch of data somebody forgot to exclude. I don't think this is not something people want known. I had, like, the chief rabbi of Italy write, write me, says, please don't write your book. Uh, that's This is such an important issue, though. All the more. I mean, <laughs> if he thought it was unimportant, he wouldn't have said that. Yeah. He said, well, if people think we're smarter, they'll kill us. I said, well, you know, they know you're smarter. Not instantly smarter, but some smarter. I think it's safe to say that Pinker thinks, I think he thinks I'm probably right, but I don't think he'd consider proven because I don't either. (laughs) Uh, uh, He did a long exposition of our paper at some meeting in New York. Uh, uh, But... He I mean, he certainly understood it, but I, I don't think he thought it was crazy or anything. It, it's not crazy. Uh, but uh, 
in general, the idea that you can have selection can push different human populations in different directions that you might actually notice in, say, a thousand or two thousand years. I mean, it's perfectly logical, but very few people think about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's. I mean, historians don't act as if oh, they could have changed, but they could. But you know, that's just not in their vocabulary, generally speaking. Do economists think this way? No. I know some who do, but they're damn quiet about it. Yeah, I mean, Greg Clark's being the big exception. Uh, he's one, and he's getting away with it. Yeah, That's well, what I don't understand. He's careful to say that it could be culture. He's like, oh, I don't know if it's genetic, it's cultural transmission, and he might not, I don't know if he believes that or not, but it's a very good strategy. Of course he doesn't believe it. It doesn't make any, I said, so, when we talk about this conservation of upper-classness, mm -hmm. I said, what, is there a secret handshake that they keep telling the kids in the next generation so that regression is slow? What would it be? I mean, uh, I kind of think uh, I kind of think he thinks uh, genetics is part of it, uh, but even I don't know. I mean, a lot of the stuff you really need to sit down and look hard at it, but people don't want to because they don't like the answers. I mean, the idea that genetics made no difference would be surprising. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's but people usually say, well, but you know, if the world wouldn't be living worth living in if if I mean if I was like my dad. And my dad says the same thing. I mean, uh, <laughs> they real—it's real strange if you ask me. Uh, the other thing is, most of it's fairly apparent. But I was thinking—I wrote about this once on the blog. I think it's become less apparent because, for example, when families were bigger, and also when people uh, were more likely to know their neighbors, like in a small town or traditional mm -hmm. neighborhood, you see the resemblances. Uh, John Hawks was telling me about a time when. Uh, he was talking about heritability of IQ, and he said it's pretty high. He said his most, and this was to an anthropology class, and most of them would not believe it. Mm. They just said, that can't be. He said later he learned to teach it by what he would do is he would have the people get their parents' height and their height, and then he would, you know, show the correlation. Mm -hmm. He'd start out with height. And it turns out people are not super sensitive to the idea that height is somewhat heritable. Yeah. For one thing, it's hard not to notice, but also it doesn't upset them. Right, and then he would say, "And so are these other things," and, and you know, build up gradually. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but he said in his anthropology, 300 level anthropology course, there was only one kid who the others just knew it could not be true. Of course, we now talk about the possibility of life on other planets in our solar system. I will say that most of the things NASA says are all lies. Well. Like when they talk about uh, ice moons and their watery interiors, mm -hmm. uh, that inner part is going to be something real close to chemical equilibrium. How do you do anything? There's no way to get any metabolic energy. Even with gravitational energy? That's like, weak. I mean, what do you do? Sink to the bottom once? Well, I mean, I don't The orbits of the planets around the. Oh, you mean the, the tidal flexing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, you get warm. But even so, it still could be pretty close. I mean, like the surface of the Earth, you have this contrast between, you know, this very high temperature photons coming in. Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, But, you know, if, in an equilibrium, it's got to be pretty close to equilibrium. I don't really think you can find anything uh, in, in a – you need a source of free energy, Gibbs free energy. There isn't any significant – there are tiny ones, but they're really tiny. I mean, like if you wanted to use heat, you need to build a steam engine or something. Mm-hmm. Or some sort of heat engine. And the point is, the, the, the distance over which the temperature varies very much is actually kind of long. 
like if you wanted to have a cell, you'd, you'd need the temperature to vary, you know, within the cell from one side to the other. Mm-hmm. If uh, so, I mean, if you had a macroscopic type of life, it is not inconceivable that you could have something near a thermal vent that actually was extracting energy somehow from temperature differentials. Mm-hmm. But it can't be tiny because the differential is is really not there across a, a cell. Okay. But if it was if it was a foot long uh, near a near, near one of these vents, you could perhaps. I don't know if anything like that exists, but it's not against the laws of physics. But if you're you know if you're only you know teeny tiny, there's not much temperature difference, so you can't run a heat engine of any kind. So. Uh, I think I think that those uh, all the stuff about how we have to explore the interior of Europa or whatever, there's no chance. I mean, but I mean, except for all the things that I, I can't imagine. But I mean, the things that NASA is talking about says you're just lying. You think they know they're lying? Uh, some of them, mostly not. <laughs> I've seen people write about this. I mean, I've seen people notice that the the you know you're too close to thermal equilibrium problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how widely it's known, but you got to have you got to have differences you got to have something that hasn't burned yet you need differences you need chemical energy of some sort you need uh like every time a photon hits you there's it could, something could conceivably be done with it mm-hmm. uh you know free energy is there it could be used uh, but uh and there's even a few chemical reactions that would store a little bit of it even before photosynthesis and stuff Although photosynthesis, you know, is a hundred thousand times better, but you, you know, you could have things happen that would put things in temporary high energy states. You know, light needed sparks and and high energy photons will do it a little bit. Works a lot. I mean, with, you've got good at it when you're doing photosynthesis. Okay. But uh, uh, I mean, I don't know how easy it is to have uh, to have life in other places, but you know. By the way, we might be able to, I mean, there's one simple way to tell. If you can get a better telescope, which we can, mm-hmm. assuming that the powers, the mysterious powers of B don't stop us, if you could do spectroscopy and you could see, say, free oxygen, mm-hmm. at, you know, like the Earth's atmosphere, there's, that's not equilibrium. So that shouldn't exist. Right. If, if it's there, there's some sort of life. It doesn't mean it's advanced life, but there is life. If you have much of it, you have some place with a few percent of better oxygen. That's that's there's life on that planet, but uh, and I think they're thinking they might eventually be able to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and will they say anything? I don't know. Uh, it'd be sort of cool if they did. But Greg and I now return to talking about the paper that he wrote on Ashkenazi Jewish intelligence. One simple model is if you have selection operating on a group, but it's also mixing with another larger group that is not under that selection. The question was, how much does a little mixing do? The math is simple enough that you can say, uh, I mean, if I say it verbally, I said, as you as you get more different, that even a little leakage is pulling you back further because the leakage is more different. Mm-hmm. So that's, you were starting to get taller, but you're getting 2% admixture of, of, the, of the people around you who are, say, short and are not changing and are very large in number. So you know they're like a, a reservoir in thermodynamics or something. And they don't, you know, they change you, you don't change them because they're numerous. And if you have 2% admixture, uh, as you start to get more different, that their 2% coming in is pulling you down more. Mm-hmm. So after a little while, you hit a plateau and you can't go any higher. I mean, with a certain intensity of selection, right. 
you, and so even 2% is enough to make you, it's very hard to get very different from the other people. Now, 1%, help, it's a lot easier. Zero, the sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. But it's, it, the math of it's simple enough. You can say uh, that you can come up with a useful number, like 2% is almost too much, 3% is definitely too much, etc. If Unless you start assuming that you have a selection like says, oh, we shot 90% of the people of the shortest each generation, you know, something mm -hmm. un un unrealistic. So the math is not hard to do. I mean, there are many other things to do, but that was one thing I did after like reading up on it for a short time that was useful in that in that paper. I said you have to have, uh, you have to all marry. The usual way this happens, by the way, is you're somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Like the reason American Indians can end up different from Englishmen is because they've never even met. Yes. Uh, but it's a little harder for the Indians to get different from each other again, unless they're far apart. Uh, so, but I think that's something that, like, once you know this, and by the way, any dog breeder does know it, mm -hmm. you know that, well, how, are the Ashkenazi Jewish different? Could they be different? I said, unlike most people, they could be, yeah. because they had this rule, not that they're paying much attention to it right now, of not intermarrying. Mm -hmm. I said, and my favorite speech says, well, wasn't this all part of the plan? I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, they were... They, they, they knew this was coming you know, a thousand years ago. They, they would have known more if they, any of them had ever raised a pig or a, or a cow. But, uh, yeah, no, of course nobody knew. Right. Uh, uh, and it's hard to convince them now. Yeah. Yes, my, my other science fiction idea, this one is different. I said, what if this had happened in another group and for longer? Yeah. So let's, let's suppose that the Egyptian, some, of the, some or one of the Egyptian priesthoods, married within themselves. Mm -hmm. And there was something they were doing that was somehow a test. If you did better at it if you were smarter and you ended up with more little, priest, little priests and priestesses. Mm -hmm. You know, somehow there was... The point is the amount of time available was much longer. I mean, the Ashkenazi Jews, they haven't been in Europe much more than 1,100 years. Yeah. For, you know, they're anything like, you know, the, the main way they lived. I mean, there might have been a few of them in Italy somewhere, but, you know, they were living in one town somewhere. Anyway... Uh, so the point is, if uh, if the Egyptian priesthoods had done this, they could have done it for three thousand years. And they, of course, if they were running things, well, we wouldn't even know, because <laughs> yeah. they would have actually gotten somewhere interesting. Uh, I mean, you know, time. Uh, but as it is, I would claim uh, that you know there isn't any selection for this happening now. I mean, I've got evidence for it, at least in the general population. Mm -hmm. And I think the Jewish population, if anything, is worse. I think the birth rate is lower. Mm -hmm. And the bit about educated women not having many kids is happening even more there than among the general population. I bet with the sortative mating of people in elite colleges, I bet where there's more like six standard deviation kids or five or whatever than there ever have been. I can think of a few examples that might fall into that category. But another thing that happens is you have fewer children. Mm -hmm. And then what, what What if you marry somebody and they're over in sociology or something? I mean, it's just... <laughs> You know, so, you know, they could have an IQ of 10. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, I know places like that, uh, people like that, but there aren't very many. Uh, what Scott Aronson is expecting to have, I guess his kids, he hopes they'll be pretty smart. Mm -hmm. They're little right now. I'd, but I think his wife is also a computer science person who went to Caltech or something. But, yeah. you know, mostly those couples don't even happen. And when they happen, they don't have that many kids. I don't know if the assertiveness is I don't actually have any information that's greater than it used to be. I, you'd think it would, but 
I haven't been able to find any evidence that it actually is. Uh, I mean, I don't know. But yeah, in principle, you could end up with something further out. I know individuals who might, like John Bardeen. I mean, he was a, a faculty kid. Mm-hmm. He was the guy who was uh, came up with the theory of superconductivity and the first transistor. Nice. <laughs> Not everybody gets two Nobel Prizes in physics. No. Uh, he stuttered, though. He was a nice guy. I, I, I knew him ever so slightly when I was a grad student at Illinois. Uh, I didn't, I mean, talk, I said hi. I didn't really know him. Mm-hmm. But I knew people who did know him. They all liked him. Uh, but uh, anyhow, go to sleep. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And <laughs> Take care. Yep. This concludes my interview with Greg Cochran. His book is The 10,000-Year Explosion, How Civilization Accelerated Human Evolution. And he blogs at westhunt.wordpress.com. Now, some of you who are big fans of Greg Cochran might be thinking of asking me for the six-hour unabridged version of the interview. Unfortunately, my releasing this could be inconsistent with my continued employment in academia. Greg has a brilliant mind, one completely unconstrained by political correctness. Thank you. Goodbye.